Don't Go Christmas Tree Hunting After Dark in Northern Canada, written by Jordan Group. When I was growing up, every Christmas we would go out hunting for a tree. The perfect one, just the right size to put up in our living room. It was always an excursion. Going out into the countryside, crammed into the snow-covered car in our winter wear. My mom and dad and brother Noel and I, the four of us were an unstoppable team, heading out into the white wilderness to find that one ideal specimen to hack down and drag home with us so that we could decorate it in tinsel and cover it with ornaments, lights, and all the works. Every year, it was our tradition. Until one year, it wasn't anymore. Dad passed away a couple of years back, and with all this pandemic business, it doesn't look like we'll be doing much as a family this Christmas. It's for the first time that I can remember. It was this feeling of melancholy and neglected nostalgia in mind that I hopped into my car on a whim and drove out into the snow-covered countryside to find a Christmas tree. The whole thing was a bit out of the ordinary for me, but I was feeling stir-crazy sitting in my apartment. I had just been quarantined for a week due to an exposure at work, and I'd finally gotten back the negative test results and subsequent, all clear to venture outdoors again. After days of Uber Eats, watching reruns and old Christmas movies, I could finally leave my house. I couldn't remember where the place was that we had gone to as kids, so I just drove around until I found a farm with a sign out front. It took a couple of hours, but I liked that lost feeling, the sense of misdirection that none of us experience anymore since we all have GPS and cell phones. I had turned my phone off and put it in my glove box, vowing not to use it for the trip. Instead, just wandering until I finally found that sign I was looking for. Christmas trees. It read, $40 each. Bring your own saw. BYOS. Perfect, I thought. And just like the old days. I pulled into the frozen gravel lot and parked. It was getting a bit late in the day, so the few people in the parking lot were already tying trees to the roofs of their car or throwing them in the backs of their pickup trucks. Better hurry, said a man in a flannel shirt and overalls as I got out of my car. It gets dark early nowadays. Don't want to be stuck out there after the sun goes down. Gets cold quick in these parts. I was immediately struck by his intimidating height. Being six foot five myself, I don't often run into someone taller than me. He looked down at me, and I thought that he had to be above seven feet tall. His skin was stretched taut over prominent cheekbones, and he appeared emaciated and malnourished. Thanks, I said. I haven't done this since I was a kid. Hopefully, I still remember how to work a hacksaw. He looked at me crooked for a second, 
and then smiled in a slightly creepy way. His teeth were yellow and nicotine stained. His eyes looked yellow as well. His skin rough and covered in sores. You never forget how to use a hacksaw. It's like riding a bike. But remember what I said about the darkness and the cold. You from around here? Yeah, more or less. Why? He watched me for another second, chewing a wad of something sticky and brown in his mouth as he did. Just make sure you're back to your car by sundown. Lots of animals out, and not much to eat this time of year. What kind of animals? All kinds. Wolves, coyotes, other things too. I assumed he was the unstable owner of the place, and guessed by his comments that he was slightly insane. One of his eyes was looking at me, and the other was staring off into the distance. The parking lot was soon abandoned as all the other cars seemed to leave at the same time as I prepared to go out. Trudging through the snow, bundled up with my hacksaw in hand, I proceeded into the forest of Christmas trees, and he stood and watched me go. Near the parking lot, the trees were all too large to fit in my living room. It took a while to get into the decent ones, and I found a lot of the best specimens had been taken. This one had a hole the size of a basketball in the bows. That one was already starting to turn brown and it looked sick. Too small, too large, too skinny, too tall, too fat, wouldn't fit. Before I knew it, I realized I was having trouble seeing where I was going. The sun had been subtly setting behind my back. I tripped over something and fell in the snow. When I got up, my gloves were damp and I realized my feet were starting to feel numb. It was suddenly getting very cold. Okay, I thought to myself, just to pick one and get out of here. All the trees looked sick and dying, and I realized now, they were missing large sections and none of them looked suitable for use. I settled on a random one after a couple of minutes, and quickly hacked it down with a saw. By the time I was done, it was pretty much completely dark outside. I thought again about the man's warnings to return to my car before it got dark, and started to get nervous and wonder why he had been so insistent. Perhaps there are wolves, a voice in my mind said, or bears. Maybe there are wendigos. Why did I have to think about that? As I walked through the knee-deep snow, dragging the sick-looking little tree behind me, I remembered what I had read about them. Wendigos were a creature first mentioned in Canadian First Nations folklore, and I had once done a project on them for school. I discovered through my research that a wendigo is an evil, malevolent spirit. It is fueled by greed and loves the cold. It prefers its victims hungry, like those found in remote regions during the winter months. It possesses people and causes wendigo psychosis, 
a condition diagnosed by a psychiatrist. Symptoms include cravings for human flesh. Those who are possessed want to eat people. For every person the creature kills and consumes, its gaunt and skinny frame grows taller, thus never feeling satisfied. It is towering in its height, thin and human-like, but motivated only by greed and an insatiable hunger for human flesh. Wendigo tend to appear in the winter when food is scarce. They love the cold. They are drawn in by starvation and ice-cold, freezing despair. My stomach rumbled with hunger. Snap out of it, I told myself. I thought I heard something. Footsteps in the snow behind me. I stopped walking and turned around quickly to look. No one. I began to walk again. The darkness was nearly total. But my eyes had adjusted enough not to trip as I trudged along through the deep snow, dragging the tree by its trunk. That's when I heard the sound again. Footsteps. Closer this time. Movement of another person walking in the snow. I turned around and the sound stopped. But I had been sure that time. Someone was following me. Hello. I looked around, scanning these shadows in the direction where I had heard the noise. Is someone there? No one. Hesitantly, I turned around and began to march again, my thighs now numb from the cold. My toes had gone from a wet and frozen pins and needles sensation that I had associated with childhood tobogganing excursions to now suddenly feeling painful and dead. The temperature had plunged rapidly. I hadn't checked the forecast, but this seemed unnatural. It felt like it was a minus 30 degrees Celsius. My breath plumed out in the air in front of me, and my hands began to shake involuntarily. Suddenly, my teeth were chattering, and I was having trouble walking, my legs not wanting to move. The sound was coming behind me again, much closer now. I turned around and this time it didn't stop. It didn't try to hide. The thing coming at me looked very much like the man from the parking lot, but he was no longer human. Maybe he never was in the first place. His plaid shirt was torn, and it looked like he had grown taller than before, and was now pushing eight feet. Jaundin's eyes full of hate and hunger stared at me as he raced towards me, his long legs making him move quickly in the snow. For a moment, I was frozen there, in more ways than one. It felt like the closer he got, the colder it was. And if anything propelled me to escape from him, it was that... I didn't want to feel that freezing dread for one second longer. It felt like death. My heart racing, I dropped the tree and ran, 
The fear I felt as I raced through the snow was indescribable. Have you ever been so afraid that your body doesn't feel real anymore? Your muscle memory does everything for you, telling your body to run, and you don't even have time to think. You just run. The problem is, is when there's an 8 foot tall wendigo chasing after you, and they're obviously hungry and crazy fast. That's when it doesn't matter how quick you can run, because you're still gonna die. I heard him gaining on me, and I knew if I looked back, I would die. Just that brief momentary lack of focus would be enough to cause my demise. My heart skipped a beat as I felt it swipe at my clothing and nearly grab a hold of me, and I realized I would never get away by running like I was. I could hear its breath behind me, very closely, breathing heavily as it ran. The headlights flashed suddenly, illuminating me, and I heard the wendigo scream and duck away. The parking lot was to my left, I realized. I had reached it just as the creature was about to grab hold of me. It would have still, if not for this one random person pulling into the parking lot. I heard the wendigo running off back into the trees, clearly terrified of the light. My heart hammering, I walked toward the parking lot. I wanted to thank whoever was in the car since they had saved me. Even if it hadn't been intentional, it had happened. Interestingly, the car looked familiar. I realized as I had walked over to it. My older brother, Noel, rolled down his window, and the expression on his face revealed a total lack of surprise or any other emotion. Noel, you save me, man. Thank you. There was something chasing me out there in the woods. No one to go, he asked. Yeah, how did you know? And how did you know I was out here? Mom told me that you went looking for a tree, and there's only a couple of places that you can go these days. I got worried about you. Don't you remember what Dad always told us? The memories started to flood back to me. I had forgotten what my father had warned us over and over again. No wonder the advice from the man in the parking lot had been so familiar. Never go hunting for Christmas trees after dark, I said. But what does that have to do with Wendigos? Man, think about it. Those guys love the cold, right? And they love when people are hungry. What are the two things you always remember feeling when we went looking for Christmas trees as kids? My stomach rumbled again, louder this time. Why had I skipped dinner before coming out here? Point taken. My whole body is completely frozen solid, totally numb, and I'm starving. Follow me, he said. I'll drive to the nearest burger place and we'll get a bite to eat and get you warmed up. I got into my car with one last parting glance at the woods. Yellow eyes gleamed from the darkness. Maybe I'll get the veggie burger for a while.
There's a war going on in northern Canada, but it's not against humans. Written by Zacharias Frost The Yukon is a cold and unforgiving land, littered mostly by sprawling forests and rolling plains. Nature is queen out here, and she rules this land with a graceful iron fist. Those who test her rarely live to tell the tale, and I'm afraid that proverb is becoming truer by the day. For the better part of the last decade, I've been a park ranger at Tombstone Territorial Park. It's a massive nature reserve sprawling over 2,100 square kilometers. The land boasts a wide array of environments with thick forests, rolling fields, icy lakes, glaciers, and geysers, which allow for some magnificent views and unique experiences. It's truly beautiful, breathtaking, and I don't think I would trade it for anything else. However, something truly bizarre is going on out here, and I've been forced to rethink everything. I've never been much of a writer myself, so forgive me if parts of this are not the most vernacularly pleasing. Truth is, I figured I had to write it, because the media sure as heck ain't gonna cover it. What's happening out here is something I believe everyone deserves to know. It started about two weeks ago, when a late night visitor caught me and a fellow ranger, Gunny, just as we were about to head out for the evening. We use call signs for all the rangers out here, so I'll just refer to them by that to protect their real identities. Gunny and I had just locked up the main office cabin when the sounds of a screeching engine emerged in the distance. A second or two later, and we see headlights emerge down the trail. It was a skidoo, and it was coming up fast. Within moments, he was nearing our cabin. I almost thought the person wasn't going to stop at all. When he suddenly squeezed the handbrake and caused the vehicle to skid several yards and come to a stop underneath one of the exterior floodlights, his orange pleated jacket was torn up, and helmet cracked. He killed the engine, and I saw his wide eyes beneath his visor. He then basically flopped off the vehicle, hitting the ground with a thud before jumping back to his feet. He tore the helmet from his head using just his right arm, while his left dangled freely at his side, as if it was injured. The man met our confused stare, with a wide-eyed, clearly frantic stare. In a muttering, frantic tone, he managed to convey to us what had happened. He said he and his buddy were on a camping trip, and they had been out there for three days. He said they were attacked in their camp, and his friend was badly injured, and might already be dead. We tried calming him down, and asking him what had happened but the man just kept shaking his head and begging us to go save his friend. We ushered him inside, and two of the other rangers began tending to his injuries as Gunny and I mounted up. We grabbed our rifles from the lodge and got on our skidoos to go find the wounded hunter's friend. The area the man had indicated was a solid 20-minute ride out, just outside the park's recreational trails in a well-known area which was popular with hunters. Gunny and I took off riding, feeling the cold air dig into our splotches of exposed skin like little needles. 
We were never able to get a description from the man of what it was that attacked him. I imagined it was a bear, a pack of wolves or a moose which are all fairly common out here. Attacks from wildlife are relatively rare out here, but they do happen. Something about the event had left a deep pit of dread in my stomach though, and it persisted throughout the entire ride out to the location. Several minutes later, Gunny rounded a corner ahead of me and slowed. I followed behind and the headlights from my rig shone on a campsite off to the right side of the trail. He and I parked, and I saw the remnants of a tent swaying gently in the breeze. Debris was littered all over the camp, and most of their gear had been smashed or torn to shreds. It looked like a combination of a tornado, and Freddy Krueger had ransacked the site. Gunny and I cradled our rifles as we searched the camp. The night was eerily quiet, filled only by random gusts of wind that rustled the trees. After only a minute or two, we found the missing man, and he was not nearly as lucky as his partner. He was sprawled out in the remnants of his tent, face pale and body covered in red. His chest had been absolutely gutted, leaving fragments of internal organs scattered throughout the area. I felt bile rise in my throat as I observed the morbid scene and turned away to dry heave as Gunny got a closer look. I've seen my fair share of animal attacks and accidental deaths out here, but I've never seen something quite that extreme. Something that completely eviscerated the guy. Suddenly, I heard the crackling of branches coming from the tree line on the other side of the trail. I lifted my rifle and aimed towards it, shouting a command for whoever was there to show themselves. Part of me anticipated a person stepping out of the woods, but what actually emerged was far more curious. A quadruped silhouette rose in the woods, sporting a decent set of antlers. It stepped out, revealing itself as a three-point juvenile deer, probably just a few years old. Normally, deer are rather skittish, but not this one. It just stared at me, and my heart lurched into my throat. Its antlers were bloodied, covered in strands of flesh and viscera, and its eyes appearing as obsidian pools devoid of tint. Gunny stepped beside me, both of us clutching our rifles at our chest. Time seemed to stand still then, as the three of us maintained that silent staring contest for several uncomfortable seconds. And then, without warning, it changed. Gunny and I fired multiple times, but the deer trudged downward, slamming into Gunny and knocking him back several feet. He fell on the ground with a groan, and the deer swiveled in my direction. I fired another round, which struck square in its torso. The deer wobbled on its feet for a moment as the 308 bullet tore through its heart, causing blood to spurt from inside and stain the snow. It collapsed in a heap a moment later. I rushed to Gunny and helped him to his feet. He had been gored in the shoulder and was bleeding, but thankfully it was mostly a glancing blow. The two of us stared down bewildered at the apparently bloodthirsty deer. It was the weirdest thing I had ever seen. Normally, the only time deer become aggressive like that is when they're cornered, which this one clearly wasn't. 
Not only had it killed the poor other hunter, but it had stuck around and tried attacking us as well. It was very unusual behavior for a deer to put it mildly. Gunny then pointed out its eyes, and the mystery grew deeper. Its eyes were entirely black, like little pools of obsidian. Normally, deer's eyes are pretty dark anyways, with amber or dark brown irises. Gunny shined the light on them, and we saw no trace of that whatsoever. We thought then that maybe the deer was sick, rabies or some other disease. Gunny joked that maybe it was the start of a zombie apocalypse, but I didn't find it as funny as he did. With that notion in mind, the two of us fled, because if the creature was rabid, then Gunny needed medical assistance ASAP. We sped back to camp and found EMTs on the scene as well as a police car when we got there. The other man was unconscious and strapped onto the gurney in the back of the ambulance. One of the EMTs began tending to Gunny, but luckily it didn't appear as though he had been injured too badly. Rabies is spread normally through bodily fluid, and since Gunny had been struck by its antlers, contraction of the disease seemed unlikely. Regardless, Gunny was loaded into the ambulance as well, and the team drove off soon after. I stayed behind and the sheriff shot me a peculiar glance. But he said his friend was still out there. You guys find him. I nodded and swallowed as I tried to devise a way to explain what we had seen. The sheriff's eyes grew wide as I explained what we had witnessed. Man, you're sure it was a deer? I nodded, both of us confused. The sheriff shot a forlorn glance into the distance and seemed to ponder the implications for a moment. You ever heard of anything like that happening? I asked and he scoffed. Not unless it was cornered or rabid. That is some seriously strange behavior. He met my stare once more. Man, you're sure the guy was dead? I nodded again, as there was a no doubt in my mind. The sheriff pondered the situation for a moment, and then sighed. Well, we better go find him before the critters do. The trail was too narrow to drive trucks down, so we loaned the sheriff and his three officers our ski to go have a look. Gunny was whisked away to the hospital, and I stayed behind to wait for the sheriff. It was well past midnight when headlights finally emerged on the trail. I exited the cabin and met with the sheriff and his team. All of them appeared exhausted and wore confused grimaces on their faces. The sheriff, too, looked perplexed. You guys find the camp? I asked. The sheriff nodded, but his confusion didn't diminish. We found it, but there ain't nobody out there. Made no sign of that buck you two shot either. That didn't make any sense to me, and I didn't know how to respond. They weren't breathing. The sheriff nodded and pulled out a smoke from his pocket. He sparked it up and took a deep inhale, allowing the smoke to pour from his gullet and spiral into the breeze. Something probably dragged him off. I'll get a search team together, but it'll have to wait till the morning. He tipped his cap, and he and his team departed. I left soon after, but I don't think anyone got a good night's sleep. The next morning, the sheriff kept his promise, 
and by 9am, he had amassed a search team consisting of 5 cops, 6 rangers including myself, and about 2 dozen volunteers from the town. The sheriff gave us all the rundown on the situation, and soon after we had entered the woods, scarring in grid formation. We did that until the sun went down, and never found anything. Just snowy vistas and silent woods with no trace of the hunter or the buck. Some of the search team, especially the guy's family, held out hope that he was still alive and just lost. I didn't have the heart to tell them the truth that he had no pulse, but I found no way of explaining how the corpses had just vanished from their camp. There are cougars, bears, wolves, and a few other smaller carnivores and scavengers in these woods, but none of them typically drag their food away, at least not too far. We searched their camp top to bottom, and found a trail in the snow where the unfortunate hunter had been dragged off. Something had dragged his body through the snow for about 50 meters, but the trail was a dead end. It just ended, with several sets of animal tracks carrying on further into the woods, but no trace of the corpse. Some of the footsteps even appeared human, but we weren't able to confirm that. Nevertheless, that brought forth two very concerning possibilities. Either this was foul play, and someone else was out there that carried off the body, or the body carried off itself. The former explanation was the main theory, as the latter was obviously ridiculous. I'd been on dozens of search and rescue missions out here, and it happens several times a year. Usually the person is found without incident, but every once in a while, we do find a corpse. What is really strange is when you never find anything at all. We returned to camp as the night began to swallow the trees, feeling disheartened and exhausted. The missing hunter's family was obviously devastated by the lack of progress, as were the rest of us. The odds of anyone surviving these sub-zero woods for over 24 hours are slim, especially if they're injured. The sheriff took a head count when we got back, and before he even finished, I realized we were missing someone. One of these senior rangers, who goes by Eagle, was not accounted for. I tried radioing him, but got no response. Myself and three other rangers, Mazda, Penguin, and Whiskey, set off to locate him, already fearing the worst. Eagle is an expert on these woods if there ever was one and he's been out here for over three decades. He basically wrote the handbook on search team etiquette and procedure, and leaving the group alone is probably number one on the list of things not to do. The woods were silent then, appearing much more sinister than they had when the light illuminated them. The gnarled, leafless trees seemed to reach out for us with skeleton fingers. The hair stood on the back of my neck, and froze every time a slight breeze rolled through. A sudden shot from behind caused me to turn back and gawk at an unusual sight. Mazda was on the ground rolling back and forth as something small appeared to be attacking him. Get it off! Get it off! Penguin rushed to Mazda's aid and grabbed a hold of the creature which had assaulted him. He then tossed it away, revealing it as a squirrel which quickly darted back into the woods. Mazda's coat was torn, but he wasn't hurt, thankfully. Penguin helped him up, and he tried catching his breath. 
You steal his acorns or something. Whiskey added with a chuckle. But Mazda was clearly rattled. Needless to say, squirrel attacks are not exactly common here. Or anywhere, as far as I know. The heck's going on over there? A fifth voice then called from the left. An outstepped eagle with a confused expression. Where you been? We were looking for you. Why'd you break off? I questioned him, somewhat annoyed by his neglect. Sorry, I thought I heard something. He didn't say anything more, and just walked right by me to head back to camp. The other rangers followed him, but something made me pause. Silence. The type of silence only found in a cold winter's night. It's something I know quite well, but that night was different, and as I stared out into the dark, murky trees, I could have sworn something was staring back. We all rendezvoused back at the cabin, and the sheriff stood in the center to speak. He basically just thanked everyone for coming out, and that the search would resume the following day. I gave Gunny a call on my ride home, and he seemed to be doing well probably from the plethora of pain meds that were apparent in his slurred, unusually chipper tone. I told him that we still hadn't found either of those corpses, and that Mazda had been attacked by a squirrel. After he finally stopped laughing about that, he said something I found interesting. Dang, first the buck, now squirrels are attacking people. Someone must have really pissed off Mother Nature. Thankfully, his rabies test came back negative, and he just needed some time for these stitches to heal. He and I shared a few jokes, and I playfully told him to rest up so he could hurry back and gather firewood for the cabin. I didn't sleep well that night, and didn't manage it at all until about 1am. When I finally did fall asleep, I didn't get much rest. I don't remember the details, but I had some very intense dreams. I hesitate to use the word nightmare because it's kind of cliche to me, but I think that's the best word to describe it. Like I said, I don't remember the details, only me waking up in a frantic gasp and drenched in a cold sweat. It might have just been the stress of everything weighing on my subconscious, but the anxiety refused to subside. Since sleep didn't seem like an activity I was going to experience that night, I decided to just wake up early and head into work. I figured I could get a head start on everyone and hopefully find the missing hunter. It didn't really seem likely by that point, and as my headlights beamed into the parking lot of the cabin, I found I wasn't even the first one there that day. Eagle's beat-up Ford F-150 sat in the lot gathering snow. I pulled up beside it and stepped out into the frigid morning. Shivering as a cold gust of wind caressed the back of my neck. Eagle wasn't in his truck, so I figured he must already be inside. I had hoped that he had the courtesy of putting on a fresh cup of coffee, but the cabin was still locked and unlit. After unlocking it, I stepped inside and called out for him, but I got no response. I then begrudgingly took on the duty of making coffee myself. Since without it, I'm about as useful as a pair of lead underwear. As it began to simmer, I took a more extensive look around the cabin. I thought maybe Eagle had just fallen asleep in one of the offices, but I didn't find him anywhere. 
On a hunch, I checked the key cabinet and my heart sunk. One of these sets of keys was missing. After checking the shed, I realized that its counterpart, Skidoo, was also gone. I stared out down the trail, but heard and saw no sign of Eagle on the Skidoo. I couldn't imagine what possessed them to go out there alone, and it really left me in an uncomfortable spot. All I wanted was to sip my coffee and wait for the others, but I knew that I had to go find him. With an annoyed sigh, I washed out a thermos from the cupboard, filled it to the brim with coffee, and snagged another one of the keys. I fired the skidoo up, burnt the crap out of my lips, taking a sip of coffee, and hit the throttle. In just a few seconds, I was on the trail out to the hunting grounds, as it was the only place that I could figure Eagle would have gone. It's winter here now and the sun doesn't rise until well past 9am. It was around 6 then, but the darkness still reigned supreme, with my only defense against it being the headlights on the skidoo. Several minutes later, and I was about halfway to the search area when I saw something off to the left. The missing skidoo sat alone by the edge of a small gully. I pulled up alongside it and killed the engine. Once more, the deafening silence consumed the environment. The skidoo was covered in a thin layer of snow, so it must have been out there for a decent amount of time. For all I know, Eagle may have never even left the night before. I thought about calling out for him, but I didn't. That same unspoken, haunting feeling was permeating the environment. It felt like breaking the silence was a sin in and of itself. I'll be honest, everything in me was screaming to turn tail and run back to the cabin, but I just couldn't abandon Eagle. He could have been injured, and my conscience wouldn't let me leave. The snow crunched underneath my boots, sounding like shattering glass in contrast to the still night. I made it to the edge of the woods and tried appearing inside, but the canopy of trees refused to relent their secrets. Something then snapped in the woods, a twig or branch. It was a significant distance away, but it might as well have been a gunshot with how distinct it was. It's well known that bears and humans are the only creatures clumsy enough to snap twigs. I looked around, once again considering calling out, but didn't. Another snap, this time to the left in the trees ahead of me. I tried rationalizing that it had just been snow falling off a branch but it didn't quell my nerves much. Suddenly, there was a raspy wail, a sound which sent shivers down my spine. It called out again and again with a few second intervals in between. After probably the fifth or sixth one, I recognized it as a fox. Dang things make some creepy noises, especially at night. And sure enough, a lone red fox popped out of the trees some 30 meters behind me, its eyes locked right on me, and the two of us just stared at one another for a moment. Suddenly, it lifted its head and shrieked again, this time in a completely different tone. It was the weirdest sound, almost like an odd, raspy snarl. The fox then darted back into the trees and silence returned. It didn't seem that significant. But suddenly, a feeling struck me, one which I doubt I'll ever find the exact words to convey. A series of powerful, 
almost painful goosebumps jutted forth all over my skin. The hairs on my neck stood up, and I felt my heart rate soar in my chest. There was a weird scent in the air, like copper and mildew, and it was terrifying. It was like some primal sense within me had reawakened and set off alarm bells on every fear reaction my body had. I turned back down the trail ahead of me. The moon had split the somber clouds above and beamed an effervescent light down upon the glistening alabaster field. At the other end of the field was a blockade of pines and within them, something stared back at me. It was a bipedal, obscured mostly by shadow, tall and gaunt, slender and menacing. It's hard for me to describe it beyond that, and believe me, I've tried. The thing looked almost human, and it was a fair distance away so I couldn't make out its full details, but its impact was immediate. The way my own body reacted, like I was biologically programmed to fear it as a feeling I just can't get over. Whatever it was, the thing was not human. We just stared at each other for a while, until slowly its left arm lifted. Its finger uncurled in a pointing motion towards me. I started to back away towards my skidoo, and the fox yelped behind me once more. I fired up the skidoo as the calls of crows and owls reverberated overhead. More animals emerged from the woods. Squirrels, rabbits, deer, fishers, rats, and others. Dozens of forest denizens, all converging on me. I didn't stick around to see what they intended to do, and full throttled the skidoo all the way back to the cabin as the forest came alive behind me. The sheriff and two of his guys were there when I arrived. They turned as I came speeding back into the lot, killing the engine and quickly unmounting. The three of them eyed me in confusion as I tried to catch my breath. The animals, there's something out there. I looked to the sheriff and his confusion seemed to increase. Slow down, son. What are you talking about? Through a mumbled stream of barely coherent gibberish, I finally managed to spit out the most important detail of what I was trying to convey. The eagle's gone. The sheriff's eyes widened, and as if on cue, a familiar yowl pierced the night. I turned back and saw the same or at least a similar-looking fox staring at me from the trail. Its sockets were like two hollowed-out shells, and the eyes within them so dark it's as if they were molded from the abyss itself. I stepped back, but the others didn't seem to sense my apprehension. The sheriff just eyed the fox warily, and it returned the gesture back at him. More sounds then emerged, chirps, growls, wails, and others one by one. In seconds, they formed into a dizzying chorus. A myriad of woodland creatures began to emerge from the thicket, with eyes of pure obsidian and malice. The sheriff took a step back and pulled his pistol from the holster. The other cops did the same, as the blockade of creatures stalked closer and closer. Suddenly, there was a loud grunt, and an enormous shadow came charging through the trees. Its hooves slammed into the ground, kicking dirt and snow aside, while gaining speed as its formidable antlers lowered like a battering ram. It was a bull moose, and before we could even retreat, it was on top of us. The sheriff lifted his pistol and fired several rounds, 
but it barely phased the enraged creature. A 9mm against a full-sized moose is a little more effective than spitting at it, and in seconds, the beast slammed into the sheriff, launching him several meters back. He slammed into the snow hard, groaning from the impact as the beast scraped its hooves along the ground, snorting. The other cops began to fire on it, and although the bullets weren't enough to kill it, they did succeed in causing it to retreat for a moment. I scrambled to the sheriff, and he groaned in protest as I tried helping him to his feet. I got him back inside his SUV, and he handed me the keys. As I routed the front of the vehicle, I saw a shadow leap onto one of the other cops. He screamed as a tomcat dug its claws and fangs into the nape of his neck. The other officer ran to his aid, but he was set upon by a horde of small creatures. Crows swept down, pecking at their faces, while rabbits, squirrels, and chipmunks nipped at their ankles. I was about to leave the truck and try to help, when a badger slammed under the hood of the truck. Its voracious fangs and claws slashing at the windshield trying to reach me. Thuds emerged all around us as countless other animals attacked. There was only one thing I could do then. I hit the gas, and the truck roared into action, flinging chunks of snow out behind us. I saw animals tumble from the hall as we swerved away, the screams of other cops blaring like sirens in the night. The badger too finally tumbled from the hood as I skidded to the right. Go back, I'm not leaving them, the sheriff commanded, though in his broken state I knew he could do nothing to help. I was conflicted on fleeing or turning back to help, so nature stepped in and made the decision for me. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a familiar silhouette emerge. The moose slammed full force into the passenger side of the vehicle. The window splintered and frame crumpled on impact. The force was so immense that I felt the truck rock on its axles, and before I could react, it teetered over and collapsed on its side. My head slammed hard against the window, and my vision grew fuzzy. In my momentary delirium, I saw the light beginning to grow on the horizon. A miasma of sounds swirled into my brain, as I heard the other men scream in pain and desperation. A familiar snort then struck, and I saw the bull moose stomp out in front of the broken SUV. I felt its gaze bear down upon me and its enormous rack poised to tear me to shreds. All of a sudden, there came this odd, whistling noise. It was like the sound of a harrowing winter breeze played through a clarinet, strange, piercing, and otherworldly. The moose then lifted its head, as if alerted by the sound. It shot me one final, disdainful glance and then trotted away. I heard the sounds of the other animals fleeing as well and the pain-stricken groans of the other cops. I looked at my side and saw the sheriff, suspended in the seat above me. Luckily, one of us had remembered to wear their seatbelt. He was barely conscious and bleeding. I managed to orient myself towards the windshield, and after a series of kicks, I finally managed to kick it out. I crawled from the wreckage of the SUV on wobbly legs, still dazed and in disbelief of what I had just witnessed. One of the cops was standing by the other vehicles, clasping his chest with his right arm. His left arm had been torn clean off, 
and his face was scraped and scratched like crazy. I regrouped with him and found that as bad as his condition was, he was the lucky one. His fellow officer was laying a few meters away, his chest uttering labored breaths. His face looked like it had just been shoved into a blender, and his torso didn't fare much better. There was nothing we could do for him, and less than a minute later, he stopped breathing. The wounded cop then radioed for backup, as I attempted to rouse the unconscious sheriff. A few minutes later, and a cavalcade of cops, ambulances, and citizen vehicles rolled up on the grisly scene. They got the sheriff and the injured cop into an ambulance, while the remainder of the crew stayed behind to try and make sense of the madness. That was almost a week ago now, and things have shown a little improvement. The sheriff and his fellow officer are still in the hospital with a combination of multiple broken bones, internal bleeding, and other injuries. They never found Eagle, nor the other hunter which began this whole fiasco. A day or two after the incident, and Tombstone Park was shut down until further notice. It's not been officially posted online or anywhere else, but if you go there, they'll refuse you access. Who they are exactly, I'm not sure, but they've taken full control of the matter now. Two days after the assault, I was recovering at home when I got a knock on my door. Two men and a woman, all dressed in identical black suits, greeted me and inquired if I would be willing to answer some questions. They refused to identify who they worked for, which made me turn them down initially. They swore that I was not in any legal trouble, and provided a document of that fact. They then leveled with me, and said that people are in danger and they could really use my help. So, I agreed and told them essentially everything I've written here today. I asked them what was going on and who they were, but they avoided the questions with some of their own. They didn't say a lot as I retold my tale, and left soon after as quickly as they had arrived. These last few days and multiple residents of the town have attested to hearing bouts of gunfire late at night. Before long, Humvees started arriving in the town, with armored trucks, helicopters, and even an Abrams tank. And clearly, they aren't taking any chances with whatever is out there. I managed to run into one of the agents for this mysterious enclave that had invaded our town the other night. He was hesitant to say anything, but after I bought him a few drinks, his tongue loosened up a little bit. I assumed they were Canadian government operatives, but he denied that, claiming instead that they were a private security detail known as Misnomer LLC. Essentially, mercenaries, but with some truly impressive equipment at their disposal. I asked him what the heck was going on out there, and he admitted things were not exactly under control. Apparently, three guys had died earlier that day, and the attacks only seemed to be growing. He said that larger animals had since joined in. Cougars, grizzlies, wolves, elk, polar bears, and others. He said one guy even claimed to have seen a Bengal tiger out there, but no one could confirm that. He also said that some of the creatures they encountered were like nothing anyone's ever seen, like things that weren't yet known to science. He said that some large hairy bipedal creature had smashed the skull of one of his guys the previous night. They didn't get a good look at it, 
but it was clearly much larger and faster than them. He also said that something had taken down one of their choppers, and no one had any idea what it was. I asked him what the heck they were doing with, but he didn't seem to have an answer. He said as far as he could tell, the local wildlife had become infected with some disease, possibly a mutated strain of rabies or prions. He said the animals didn't act aggressive in the day and seemed to behave quite normally, but at night, it all broke loose. He too had seen their obsidian eyes and said they were all like that now. I don't think he's right about that. I don't think this is a disease at all. If it were, then surely Gunny and the other wounded officers would have contracted it as well. Maybe the disease lies dormant in a host for a while, or maybe it hasn't yet made the leap to being capable of infecting humans. But I have another reason for thinking that, whatever this is, it isn't the result of some contagion. The way the animals behaved wasn't like they were sick. It was like they were determined and vengeful. The way the bull moose seemed to respond to that strange whistling sound and retreated with the others. It's like they're being commanded by something. Like soldiers in some forlorn army, their attacks are premeditated, coordinated, and ruthlessly efficient. And it leads me to believe that something is organizing them to be that way. There's a group of First Nations people known as the Athapaskan. They have settled these lands for countless generations, long before Canada ever became a country. They have a legend about something known as the Kurektai, roughly translated as the one who hates. I have a few Athapaskan friends and they've told me that this thing is a malicious spirit. No one knows where it comes from, what it wants or how to stop it. They say that several hundred years ago, it slaughtered entire tribes near the region, corrupting animals to follow its will. They said that it could have easily killed the entire continent if it wanted to, but it eventually just stopped and faded away and into folklore. They still refused to speak its name, fearful of catching its attention. The more they told me about it, the more I was reminded of that thing I saw in the woods. That has to be it. Every time I think of it, that familiar sense of intense dread becomes palpable in my gut. I just can't ignore the feeling that it gave me. I don't know if I believe in these superstitious stories. I don't know if that thing really is the curate tie or not. For all I know, it could be an alien, wendigo, or frickin' spaghetti monster that's causing all of this. I suppose it doesn't really matter what I think because something out there killed one of our rangers and a good friend. Eagle deserved better than what he got. All the victims did. As for now, the situation has apparently quieted down in the last few days. The animals haven't launched another attack, and that could mean one of two things. Either this thing has finally been defeated, or it's preparing for a large-scale attack. Pray for us and hope that the second theory is wrong. I got stuck with a pet demon. Do you know how scary these things are? Written by Postmortem33 I don't have to tell you how scared I was when I saw it. Like, really scared. I didn't believe it was real at first. 
I thought maybe I was dreaming. But soon after, I concluded that I was dealing with a creature that's out of this world. It isn't every day that you meet with intergalactic, demented creatures or demons from whatever evil places there are. I just found it on my couch one morning after I woke up. It was the oddest and scariest thing I've ever laid eyes on. When it saw me too, it started howling, raging like crazy, probably demanding food. The game was on, and I was watching it like it was the biggest football fan in the world. And then it started dragging its butt on the carpet, circling around me. The creature didn't attack me or anything. He seemed harmless, but still horrible to look at. It burped and started running through the living room, until it went headfirst into the furniture, where it instantly blacked out. I honestly thought it was going to bite or kill me when it would wake up and my heart was racing inside my chest, drumming so hard like Tommy Lee was playing a solo in a Molly Crew live concert. I saw a letter on the carpet and wondered where or whom it was from. And, of course, that's when the trouble started. Let me just write it in here verbatim, and then I can go on with it. It was written in red ink. The letters were pulsating in different shades and I was pretty sure it had to be supernatural or the likes of that. Luckily, I took a photo before reading it all. You'll see why it was a good idea. Dear Jonathan, Hello there. Sorry to send Fluffy out of the blue, but I am really busy at the moment, and I need you to take care of him for a few days. These are troubling times down here. I had a few guys who went overboard with drinking and gambling, and they haven't been doing their duty properly. I won't get into detail about how things here work as you're not eligible for a place yet. You're very close though. I don't even want to start telling you what a crazy party we had on Halloween. We had demon dancers and we smoked DMT, drank whiskey that was a thousand years old, brewed right down here with our special recipe. Good times. I left one bottle in the fridge for you as well. Just be careful with drinking too much or you'll go insane. It kind of burns your throat like really bad, and if you do shots, you'll be able to breathe flames. No, not really. Joking, duh. I like bringing the lols, you know what I'm saying. Seriously though, don't drink too much in a single day. If you have just a single on the rocks, you should be fine. If you actually do get drunk on it and see the dancing devils, just ignore them. They're not real. Or are they? Just kidding. Anyways, the reason that I sent Fluffy over is that I have some business to attend to here on Earth, and I can't leave him alone down there. The last time I did it, he ate my sidekick after he forgot to feed him on time. I can't carry him with me either because, well, I've got important stuff to do that requires my utmost attention. So, I have chosen you to watch for my dear old Fluffers. Ain't he great? Did he get to run headfirst into the furniture by now? He does that when he's in a new environment. Speaking of, his feeding time is every Wednesday at 12pm sharp. Not a minute earlier, not a minute later. I can't even highlight the importance of that. Even if he is a demon, he still eats the usual raw stuff. Raw hearts, raw kidneys, raw muscles. You know, everything meaty basically. Also, aside from that, he requires milk daily. Just a little, it doesn't matter when you give it to him, he won't refuse it. 
Just make sure it's not too much, otherwise they'll start to barking and howling like crazy. And your neighbors will hear them, and you don't want that to happen. No bueno. He does like strawberries from time to time, but I recommend giving those only on Friday mornings, and only in moderation, like two or three of them, because he has a tendency of getting bloated, and then he'll start crapping all over your house. And you do not want that to happen because his poops are very acidic and will punch holes on the floor. You'll have a crappy floor, get it? Anywho, I gotta bounce. I'll come get fluffy later this month. Do not get physically or verbally violent with him. Toodles. Yours truly, Satan. P.S. If you're lucky and he likes you, he'll try and communicate with you. So, if you ask him a yes or no question, he'll reply with one bark for yes and two for no. Try it if you get the chance. P.S.S. If I see that you took good care of him, I'll make sure that you get a big, fat reward. If no, then... Right after I finished reading it, the letters scrambled all by themselves into the face of a devil who smirked and winked at me right before vanishing. What the heck is right? If you're like me, then you're wondering, what is going on? I just experienced two supernatural events in less than five minutes, and I didn't even think that there was a word in the dictionary to describe how scared I was. The tag of his collar was in the shape of a pink heart with the name Fluffy written on it, so I knew that he didn't lie in the letter, but... Fluffy? There was a huge discrepancy between the name and the actual way the creature looked like. Anyway, let me tell you a bit about Fluffy. God, I can't even say his name without my heart starting to rise up in my throat when I think I had to monster-sit the devil's pet. The small creature was approximately three feet tall. It had a purple fur all over its body and two crimson tusks, one longer than the other. Its eyes were a bright hue of glowing pink, and it had three legs and four arms. The arms had little claws in them, probably so that it could grab its food better. I still couldn't believe it, but I was sure it was real. I had to do what he said in the letter, and I had to take care of it. I found myself in a situation in which I had never thought it would be. I decided to call to him, just like Satan wrote in his letter. Maybe that would have helped. Fluffy was waking up and I approached him. He was a bit scared, I could sense it, and when I tried to pet him on the head, he hissed at me. And that's when I noticed his dark orange tail that ended in an arrowhead tip. Classic demon stuff, right? I let out a whoa and saw his pink eyes and the tail both lit up in flames. The light was flickering while he focused on studying me and my moves. The tail was colored a bright, flamey orange that seemed to contrast the dark hue pretty well. I wondered how I should call him. Here, Fluffy. Here, here, little demon. At a monster. Fluffy, want some milk? I asked. He started wagging his tail and ran towards my leg. Fortunately, the fire was gone and nothing burned. Does Satan give you milk where you come from? I asked again and I heard him bark, sort of. It wasn't your traditional dog bark. More like a thousand barks that echoed in one. You know, like you can imagine a creature of hell doing one. Yeah, that's exactly how it sounded. I took a bowl and put some milk in it and he started drinking with his three tongues and spikes started coming out from his back. 
That probably meant that he liked it, I thought. I felt physically sick when the sound of them erecting from under the flesh, and I started shivering with a fear that I never thought to experience ever in my life. I made his sleeping spot in the kitchen, and I tried to make it as comfortable and cozy as possible. After all, I didn't exactly know how to take care of a demon pet, except for the instructions I was given. Of course, I had to call in sick to work that morning because you know you don't get the chance every day to monster sit Satan's pet. Time passed on and nothing significant happened on that Tuesday. Oh, luckily, I remembered to get his food for the next day. There was a butcher shop nearby, so it was a quick errand run. I left him sleeping and I wished that nothing bad would happen. I mean, Satan would have had him trained by now, right? I bought like 20 pounds of chicken hearts, beef steaks, sirloins, and pork chops, and put them in the freezer to make his lunch the next day. And then I heard my neighbor Gary blasting that stupid heavy metal and screaming vocals over the original song like a freaking lunatic. Hey, you mind turning that down? I'm trying to rest. I angrily yelled. Hey, up yours, buddy. This is real music. Not that pop stuff you listen to. His wife Karen replied. Hey, screw you both, you demented people. I'm going to call the cops if you don't turn that stuff down, you hear me? I said, blood starting to boil inside my veins. Five minutes later, the music stopped. Freaking Gary and Karen, what a lovely couple. I saw Fluffy standing behind me growling. Hey, sorry little guy, I shouldn't have yelled. It's that they make me so upset sometimes with that stupid musical vomit. I told him that he didn't stop growling. I moved past him, but he was still standing there motionless, just growling in their direction. I assured him that it was alright and told him to come with me, so that I could give him some milk. He happily obliged. Night came and I took Fluffy to bed. Even though he seemed to listen to every word I said, there was still some sort of darkness in the way that he looked at me. They say that the eyes are windows to the soul, so maybe that's exactly what he was doing. And trying to read my soul and see if I was fit to take care of him or not. Listen here, Fluffy. Your owner gave me strict rules and told me to be really careful about taking care of you, okay? So please, don't start throwing tantrums in the middle of the night to become too curious about the neighborhood, okay? I told him, hoping that maybe he could understand. Still... I was trembling with fear. And then I remembered what Satan said at the end of the letter. One bark for yes, two for no. Do you understand? I asked him again and heard him bark once. We were starting to get along pretty good, and I went to bed for the night. Lights out. Someone knocked on the front door. I got out of bed to see who it could have been at that late in the night. Half asleep, I opened the door to see Gary, enraged with madness, drunk as a skunk and tie as a kite, holding a knife in his hand. You disrespected my woman, you piece of crap. No one talks to her like that, he said, his hands shaking. Listen, man, I'm sorry, alright? I shouldn't have said those things. I told him, hoping and resolving the conflict peacefully. Of course, that wasn't the case. You can't reason with madmen. His right fist connected with my face and I was sent on the floor, stars filling my vision. 
My upper lip split and I felt blood entering my mouth. The salty and coppery taste was something that I haven't felt since I was in a school fight as a kid. I tried to punch back, but I couldn't match his enormous size and strength. He put the knife on my throat and asked me if I wanted to die. I nodded as tears started to form in my eyes. He was pressing the tip of the blade against my neck. I thought that the end would soon follow, and I would die at the hands of a drunken crack addict. He pocketed the knife and spat on my face, telling me that if I ever even looked at them, I would be dead. He ended by saying that if I'd called the cops, he would kill me. Even if I were to be arrested, he would hire a guy to do it, or worse, just cripple me, make it look like an accident. I looked in the corner where the kitchen was, and saw Fluffy standing there, just watching. I shook my head at him, not to make a move, and then I peed myself with fear, the warm liquid staining my pajama pants. Gary punched me one more time in the ribs and I coughed blood on the floor. You're disgusting, he said, right before leaving, slamming the door on his way out. I didn't want to call the cops straight away because fear overtook all my other senses and the guy was crazy. I mean, he could have come back at any second and I never trusted a person as erratic as him. Besides, I had to deal with more important things than my split lip and peed pants. I raised myself, passed my lip, and went to take a shower. I was in and out of sleep for a few hours when suddenly, I jolted awake when I heard the front door slamming shut. Someone was trying to rob me. I had to deal with my demon, a crazy neighbor, and now a burglar. Or maybe it was Gary who had changed his mind and wanted to finish me off for good. Crap, crap, I thought. I didn't have anything to defend myself with. So, I took a pencil from my desk so I could jab the guy in the eye if push came to shove. I checked the living room. Nothing. I looked around. Nothing. I went to the kitchen and turned on the lights. Fluffy was standing there with a human arm in his mouth, while his tusks were dripping red. I recognized Gary's tattoos on it before I stumbled and fell down on the floor. Fluffy was different. He was bigger in size and now there were spikes all over him, and they dripped red too. He started wagging his tail and dropped the arm at my feet, barking at me to take it. And then he pushed it again with his tusks toward me. No, Fluffy, what did you do? I yelled. Big mistake because his eyes and tail lit up again. Sorry for yelling, didn't mean to. It's just I'm scared, and you shouldn't have done that. I said, and then I saw Gary's head watching me from the corner of the room, his lifeless, dull eyes frozen with fear. I shrieked and fell on the floor again, and then from across the street, I heard Karen letting out a huge scream, one that woke up the whole neighborhood. I understood why Fluffy did it. He wanted to protect me from the bad neighbor, but he left me with a bad situation on my hands, so I had to think fast. Fluffy, is the rest of the body here in my house? I asked. He barked twice. Did you leave it in their house? I said while I pointed to Gary and Karen's house. Woof. Well, at least we got that figured out. I was afraid that he would have eaten parts of him, and then we would have been in double trouble. 
He wasn't allowed to eat anything except on Wednesday, remember? I told him to stay put. I got some trash bags for Gary's head and arm and then stuffed them inside the freezer with the rest of the food. Figured, I don't know, maybe he would eat them in a few hours. I then wiped the floor clean with bleach and made sure there wasn't any more blood in the house. Fluffy went to sleep like nothing happened. What in the world? And then I heard the police sirens, and as I watched through the window, I saw them pull up in front of my neighbor's house. I didn't even notice it was morning. I just stood on the side of my bed, petrified. All kinds of scenarios going through my head. Jail for the rest of my life, death row, things like that. 11.30 in the morning. And time passed so fast while I stood there like a statue. Still and unable to move. Frozen with fear. I heard a knock on the front door. Two police officers came to ask me questions. They wanted to see if I knew anything about Gary's disappearance. As soon as I started talking, Fluffy started barking. Hey Fluffy, keep it down please. I'm trying to talk with these officers about the tragic accident that happened last night. Do you understand? He barked once. I'm trying to save both of our butts here, I thought. His wife told us that you got in a fight yesterday, Mr. Turner. She said that you were pretty aggressive towards them. Mind telling us why? One of them asked. I looked at the two agents over, standing on my porch and wished that Fluffy would come and rip their heads off. I wasn't aggressive, officers. It's just sometimes they take that metal music too seriously and forget that other people are living in the neighborhood. It was very loud and I was trying to get some rest. I told them, whimpering. More questions followed and when I checked the clock, it said 11.51. If that's all, officers, I said, trying to make them leave so I can feed the dog. Got somewhere to be, sport. The agent asked me patronizingly. I shook my head and said that I just needed to feed my dog. He's very hungry. Come on, Gary. Leave the man be. We'll be in touch, Mr. Turner. Thank you for your cooperation. His name was Gary. I felt like I was in some sort of bad cosmic joke. What happened to your lip? The officer said. You got your butt handed to you or something. I said that my dog had accidentally scratched me while I was training him. It was no big deal. And then they said goodbye, and I was getting really nervous and stressed because I didn't want to miss Fluffy's lunchtime. 11.54 I ran to the fridge and took the frozen meat and quickly placed them in the microwave. Ran to frost for three and a half minutes and fed Fluffy. The spikes came out again from his spine and I asked them if he liked the food, and he barked once and kept eating. And then I heard another knock. It was Officer Gary again, this time alone. His voice tone was a little bit changed. I know you did it, Jonathan. I know you have his head and arm in the fridge, he said. No, 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 this wasn't happening. He pointed his gun at me. On the ground with your hands behind your back, you're under arrest, he said while I followed his instructions. I was basically screwed. I would go to prison first and then Satan would come after me for not taking care of his pet. And then Officer Gary started laughing. Oh man, you should see the look on your face right now. Get the heck up, man. 
I was just messing with you. I told you that I like to bring the lols. He said, crying with laughter. Now where's my fluffy? Then the little creature came running from the kitchen and jumped on Officer Gary. I mean, Officer Satan. I mean, uh... Thank you for taking care of him for me. My business finished earlier than anticipated, and I'm truly grateful for your absolute dedication towards the little fella here, Satan said. Mind if I take all the meats from your fridge, including the, you know... I nodded. Jonathan, I told you that you'd get a reward for being nice to my fluffers, didn't I? He asked me. I nodded and he told me that my mortgage has been paid off in its entirety. I'll see you around, Johnny boy. I like you. You could work for me. Think about it, will you? He said. Come on, Fluffy, to the Batmobile. He finished. They hopped in the car and started driving into the distance. Well, my piece of crap neighbor is dead. That means no more crappy music unless Karen decided to go solo on the vocals. Maybe I'll get Fluffy again and teach her a lesson too, if I get the chance. Hey, at least I'm debt free, so I got that going for me, which is nice. Might as well pour myself a glass of Satan's whiskey now. I've lived in a subterranean town my whole life. I thought it was the only safe place in the world. I was wrong. Written by N.S. Lewis My father was a brilliant man, and a dangerous one. He engineered a small town underground for us to live in, because he believed that the world above was gone. That is where I was born, and where I lived my entire life, up until last week when, in desperation, my mother helped push open the hatch and hoist me outside, into the sunlight. My father was wrong about the world ending 40 years ago, but if the thing that devoured him ever makes it above ground, the world may still end yet. I was the first history teacher to have been born below, so in the beginning it felt very strange to tell the children about the history of humanity back when it existed above. But my mother pointed out that when she had learned it above, her teachers had never seen most of the things that they related either. That's why we learn history, she had said, so that we can remember what we never knew. You will do wonderfully, Akaya. On the day the walls began to rumble, I was teaching the history of how we came to live below. Seth Whalen was an accomplished engineer, working for the United States government on a military project. I began. He was quite aware of how destructive the weapon that he was designing was, because after all, he was its chief inventor. Yet at the time, he was naive, and believed the men who told him that the weapon would only be used as a safeguard, a last resort to prevent a doomsday scenario. By the time that he came across some documents indicating otherwise, it was too late. His design was in their hands, and there was nothing that he could do about it. I paused as I felt the first tremor. I didn't think anything of it 
as tremors were a common occurrence. Still, there had been some bad shifts in the past, with more projected in the future, so we had to take the early warning signs seriously. Was that a shift, Miss Whalen? Asked one of my students, Aiden. No, Aiden, I said. It was merely a tremor, and it seems to have passed. Now, I will continue with the lesson. As I was saying, Mr. Whalen discovered that there were indeed plans to use the weapon aggressively as soon as it was completed. My father, that is. Mr. Whalen estimated that he had two years to do something about this. That was how long he calculated that he could stall the project. Kara, my daughter, raised her hand. Yes, Kara. What was the weapon to be used for? I hesitated. This was always the hardest part. To reveal to the children that humanity had killed itself off, and the world along with it. Recall the tensions between the US and the Soviets that I've been teaching you about. The so-called Cold War with the ever-present lurking threat of a nuclear engagement. The weapon was many times more powerful than any existing nuclear weapon, and was meant to turn the Cold War into the hottest war imaginable. That was what was slated to happen. Mr. Whalen tried to point out the obvious, that by the time the weapon actually gathered enough energy to fire, the Soviets would have had the time to send off their entire nuclear arsenal. It meant the end of the world, but nobody listened to him. Another tremor hit, this time more intense. The wall shook so hard that the clock fell down and shattered on the floor. Perhaps we should continue the lesson another time, I said. Class is dismissed. You are all to make your ways directly home, and listen to your guardian's instructions. But we were just getting to the part where Grandpa built below, said Kara. We'll pick up there tomorrow, I said. Come now, everyone is to go straight home. Kara, you come with me. This happened on occasion, and was nothing to be alarmed about yet. I waited to make sure that each child was heading in the right direction. The school was situated in the exact center of the third floor, to symbolize the importance of knowledge and wisdom in our lives. Our houses encircled the school, comprising the remainder of the third floor. The two floors above where we lived were taken up with agriculture. The floor below was for administrative work, and the floor below that was for manufacturing. When the children were all walking down the proper paths out of the school courtyard, I began walking to my own home with my daughter. As we were passing by the bench near Sapium Dum Lake, where I had my first kiss as a teenager, the ground jolted violently, and Kara was thrown off her feet. I hurried to help her up. It's a shift, isn't it, Mama? She asked, rubbing her knee and sniffling a bit. It may well be, I said. We'd better hurry inside. We rushed back to our house and went inside. My father was in his usual place, in the meditation room, sitting in his chair, hooked up to his machines. Ah, my dears, he said when he saw us walk through the doorway. School has been cancelled. That was a wise decision, Akaya. I feel it in my bones that this is a bad one. Take the child to your mother, 
We have something urgent to discuss. Why can't I hear? Whined Kara. Childhood comes but once, said my father, struggling to find his breath. He put his mask over his face and inhaled deeply, and then he went on. Though the world is gone, we remain human and are swayed by the dark passions and knowledge of unclean things. Bathe a while more in the warm, delightful waters of youth, my Kara. Splash in joy, and leave the doors closed for as long as you are able. That may be a while yet, I hope. Relish in the mystery and the wonder at what's on at the other side. Kara sighed. Fine, I'll go with Grandma, she hopped. When I was alone with my father, I approached him and put my hand on his arm. What is it? I asked. Shh, he said. Do you feel that? I was about to reply that I didn't feel anything unusual, when from outside, we heard a monstrous crash. The sky is falling, said my father. It's a shift, I asked. It's more than a shift. I'm afraid. It's a rebirth. Outside, a steadily mounting rumble was growing louder. Father, I said, what are you talking about? My father sighed deeply and was silent for a while. I heard the beeping of his machines as the noise outside threatened to drown them out. At last, he spoke. I haven't been truthful with you, my love, nor with anyone. I waited for him to explain himself. Oh, he said, I'm quite sure that the world above has been blasted to hell. That much is the truth. They were ready to destroy the world as the natural conclusion of their hatred. But the weapon, I dismantled it before I came below and brought the key component with me. The house itself began to shake, despite its foundation running endlessly deep into the earth. Father, I said, we should shut up in the steel room until this passes. He lifted his hand as far as the tubes attached to his arm would allow, and waved dismissively. The steel room won't protect you. Nothing will. You're scaring me, I said. Indeed, I felt like a small child again, experiencing her first shift. I thought of Kara, and how scared she must be. What is going on? The weapon, my father said. I tell people that it was a supercharged nuclear device of sorts, but that's not what it was at all. It didn't destroy things by blasting them with radiation. It erased things entirely from existence. I tried to grasp what he was saying as books began to topple off of the shelves. That, that doesn't make any sense. Nor does it make sense that we've been living underground for the past 40 years. Oh, I've told a million lies that are convincing enough as long as you don't stop to think about them or do a modicum of research. And I know it's different for you, since you were born here, and it's all you've ever known. But the air we breathe, the food we grow, the electricity we enjoy, 
It's quite implausible that thousands of us could enjoy these things so far underground without some help. I heard glass shatter somewhere in the house, and my mother came running into the room with Kara in her arms. Kara was crying inconsolably. Seth, my mother shouted, what is this? I was just explaining, dear, said my father. I suppose you all might as well hear it at this point. It's already over, I'm afraid. I can feel it carrying my mind away to the nothing. My soul, too. Whatever soul there is. What are you talking about? I screamed. Forty-two years ago, he said. I was testing a new mechanism at the lab late at night, when I felt another presence there. I didn't see anyone or anything, so I tried to shake the feeling, but it wouldn't shake. It kept intensifying, as if the thing were getting close. But there was nothing there. I figured that I needed some sleep, so I put my head down on my desk and took a nap. As I was sleeping, I felt it slip into me. I felt it all over my body like ice, and then in my head like endless darkness. Grandpa's scaring me, wailed Kara. I could barely hear her, as the roar all around us had grown so intense. In fact, I wondered how it was possible that I could hear my father over the noise until I realized that he wasn't speaking out loud at all. I was hearing him in my mind. We know so little of what there is, said my father, and so little of what is not. It's like turning on a light switch or watching a magic trick. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it isn't there. And just because it isn't there doesn't mean it's gone. It's as simple as snapping your fingers once you understand it. But we're not capable of understanding it. Not without help. My father was bleeding from the nose and struggling to keep his eyes open. But he went on. You see, I was the weapon that was to erase half the world. It would have been so easy, I realized. I merely needed to focus on it for a few days. And snap, just like that. Gone. No trace of it. On the land or in the minds of men. It wanted me to go forth and wipe out existence. And I was prepared to do so. Arrangements were made and I was strapped to an enormous machine of my own design. To build and focus my energies. The energies of the thing inside me. But as those energies were mounting... They loosened their grip on my mind and I realized, truly, what I was about to do. So I escaped and ran. There was no need for him to go on. I saw it all in my mind. He went back to his house, where his wife, my mother, was sleeping. He dragged her out of bed and together, they made their way to the small bomb shelter that they had constructed. And then, with his mind... He turned that bomb shelter into a town, with new people who had never existed before, but suddenly had identities and memories, as if they had always existed. Nobody that I knew other than my family was real, 
or they were, but not in the typical way of evolving through millions of years, and having ancestors who reproduced. They were simply created out of thin air. I am dying, my dears, said my father, and when I do, this will all be gone. I should have given you more warning, but this had come on so suddenly. I've been fighting it for so many years, and now, in a day, it's over. Try for the irradiated world above if you wish, or join me as we become nothing. It won't be so bad. I stood in total shock as my world literally collapsed around me. I felt a hand roughly grab my arm and came back to awareness. There's a hatch, my mother was shouting. To above, come on. Goodbye, my father said, and we ran. We ran out of the house and toward the elevator. It was blocked by a pile of rubble, so we drive through the massive stone stairwell. I felt my father leave us as we started up the stairs. I looked behind me, and all I could see was darkness coming up behind us, getting closer. I had Kara slung over my shoulder and moved forward with all of my strength. I felt an incredibly cold presence following us every step of the way. We reached the top floor and my mother led us to a massive metal door. I turned and saw that the nothing was there, just on the other side of the field. It was turning the only world that I had ever known into nothing. I say that it was darkness, but that's only because I can't describe it any other way. It was a blank spot in my mind. It was simply something that wasn't there anymore. We pushed the door open and looked up at the long ladder. Go, said my mother. I'll be right behind you. I made Kara cling to my back and I started climbing. It was with such a great effort and my body resisted me with each rung. Kara was moaning nonsense into my ear. She was delirious. It's so cold, my mother said from just below me. And then louder. I never knew Akaya. I promise you that. He fooled me too. I know, Mom, I said, and I did somehow. We reached the hatch. I tried to push it open, but it was too heavy. Please hurry, said my mother. It's almost here. Can you help me push? I asked Kara. Together we pushed. The hatch gave a little, but still, it didn't lift. We have to all do it said my mother, at the same time. I felt her reaching around me as she climbed up to the same rung that I was on. On three. One. Two. Three. I pushed with all of my strength, and the hatch flew open. My mother put her hands on my hips and lifted as I pushed with my legs. And then Kara and I were above. Shut it! screamed my mother. I looked down through sun-dazed eyes to see the nothing crawling up her legs. Mom, I said, reaching my hand down. She slapped it away. Shut it now. The nothing was up to her neck now. I slammed the hatch shut. Who was that? Asked Kara, standing up on the grass. Where are we? They were good questions that I didn't have the answers to immediately. There was something, 
a vague feeling way back in my mind. I tried to pull it closer, but it didn't want to come. Who was that? It was somebody I know. I struggled there beneath the sun. Oh, just let it go. It'll come to you sooner or later. And then, no, this is important. You have to remember, it was somebody you know and love. Mommy, said Kara, can we go home now? Mommy, it was my mother, and, and we were below, and now we're above. I looked around. We were on a raised section of land, a hill, I think it's called. Above was the sky, with the sun peeking out from behind clouds. I remembered what they looked like from the textbooks. And those things in the trees singing, those were birds. At the bottom of the hill, there was a road. A bright red convertible whizzed by with the top down. There was a young couple inside, laughing about something. We are home, I said, taking my daughter's hand and stepping into the new day. My grandfather was a prisoner of war in World War II. He told me about the tongueless prisoner. Written by Dark and Creepy This story was told to me by my grandfather when he was still alive and I was only 12 at the time. It has resonated with me for so long because he was generally happy and a cheerful man, with him always cracking jokes, but the only time he wasn't like this was when this story was brought up. It came from when he fought during World War II as a bombardier in the U.S. Air Force. On one particular bombing mission, his aircraft was shot down past enemy lines, and he was lucky to survive with three other of his fellow crewmates. Before they could gather themselves, they were surrounded by German soldiers and taken prisoners of war. They were interrogated and treated terribly, but he did say how he was glad he wasn't captured by the Japanese, because they treated prisoners of war even worse. This in and of itself could be considered scarring, and it did scar him, but not as much as when he came into contact with who they called the tongueless prisoner. I will retell it in first person because that was how I heard it, and I want it to be as accurate as it can be. The first few weeks of the camp were dreadful, and the rations were what you would expect to get from a nation you're at war with. I do adjust to life as a prisoner and hope to be rescued or for the war to end. I thought I was going to make it out of there alive, even if I was on the verge of starving, but still, I would be alive. That, however, soon changed when a new group of prisoners were brought to the camp. To what I remember, there were about nine of them. They were mostly paratroopers from an operation that went wrong, as somehow the information surrounding it got lead to the Japanese, who then informed the Germans. It was an ambush as soon as the paratroopers touched down from what they told me later. There was one soldier, however, who no one knew what brigade he was from. He looked like he scrambled through the woods for days or maybe even a month before coming here. His clothes were torn and barely held onto his bony body, which definitely was suffering from muscle atrophy. 
While these soldiers were marched in, this particular soldier lingered toward the back. His body quivered like he had just gotten out of a frigid lake. The guards stopped them in front of the current POWs including me and faced the new ones toward us. The German camp commandment stood at the side while a guard examined the military rank of each new prisoner before deciding on which bunking room they would be assigned. The officers generally got better beds but they were still roughly worn. But the main reason I wished I was one was because they weren't required to work like the rest of us were. However, there wasn't too much work at this particular camp compared to the others that I've heard about since. We mainly were taken in small controlled groups to go clean up rubble of nearby towns that had been bombed or digging new latrines among other things. Anyway, when the German guard finished announcing where the paratroopers would bunk, he walked in front of the skinny, shivering soldier. He looked towards the camp commandant with a confused look and said something in German. The camp commandant walked forward and was talking with him before he asked the thin soldier in an accent, What rank and company are you? The quivering man stood silent. Is tis a simple question. Why do you not answer? The camp commandant asked. The soldier opened his mouth wide and the commandant gasped. Turning to the side, he asked a guard to do something in German, and he grabbed a paper and pencil and gave it to the soldier. It was at this moment that myself and the rest of the camp realized that this man didn't have a tongue. Some people could see it, but I had people who stood ahead of me blocking the view. I wondered if he had been tortured, that it ended with it being cut out, but there was truly no way of knowing without asking. The tongueless soldier handed the camp commandant the paper. He gazed at it, saying, So, you're just an infantryman. There's a bed in bunkhouse four. Upon hearing this, my heart raced because that was the same bunkhouse I was in. At this point, I was interested in finding out about his backstory, even if it would have to be done by paper. Thinking about what it could possibly be, the camp commandant dismissed us and we were to help the new soldiers get acquainted. The tongueless soldier was then bombarded with questions and people trying to give him pieces of paper to write on. Most of it was toilet paper because paper was scarce. He didn't even acknowledge them while he looked for the bunkhouse he was given. I ran up beside him and said, Okay, everyone lay off him. He needs his space right now because just look at him. It looks like he hasn't eaten in days. I'll show him around and try to find him some extra scraps left over. I smiled and then whispered to the surrounding prisoners. I'll figure out what happened to him and tell you boys later. They agreed and soon wandered off after giving me the pieces of paper that I could use to talk to him. So, we're bunkhouse mates. I said, trying to get his attention while we walked. He, however, didn't even look at me. You know you're heading the wrong way. Bunkhouse 4 is over there. This time his eyes looked at me, and he was about the same height as me with dirty, dark brown hair that covered his face. He couldn't say anything, but by his looks he seemed to appreciate my help. He then walked up towards it without me. I felt awkward, but I really wanted to know what happened to him, so I ran up again beside him and asked, Hey, I can tell that you want to be left alone, 
But that ain't gonna happen unless we find out what happened to you. So, what was it? His body started to tremble even more as he stopped in place. Shaking, he snatched one of the papers and pencils from my hands and started writing. Handing it back, it read, I cut it out. I read the four letters and was stumped. Was this true? Did he actually cut out his own tongue? Why? I asked. He started writing again and handed another note over. It's watching me. I can't escape it and I had to do it to stay alive. Upon reading this, I immediately thought that this man was crazy or had some bad PTSD from war. Don't worry, you're safe in here from whatever's out there. I replied, trying to comfort him. He eerily shook his head while writing another one that read, It followed me, and no one's safe here. Who is following you? Do you know something you shouldn't, and so somebody's trying to assassinate you? I asked, but he took the papers from my hands, and while stuffing them into his pocket, he headed inside the bunkhouse. Standing there alone, I felt an eerie feeling run down my back, and felt a sensation of being watched and a paranoia to a degree that I had never felt before or since. I wondered if there was a sniper watching the camp, but my gut felt like it was something much worse. One of my close friends that I had made while at the camp, named John, walked up with a group of people who asked, So, what's wrong with him? I looked at them strangely and replied, I think someone's out to kill him, or he's insane, and I'm not messing around here. He told me that he cut his tongue out because it's the only way to save himself from something that supposedly followed him here. How that makes any sense at all beats me. I suppose he thinks the people would stop following him, but again, it's crazy talk. Huh, that guy must have been through a lot out there. Did you catch his name? John asked. Nah, I forgot to ask because I was so taken back by what he said. Hmm, well, I'm gonna go ask him and I'll be right back. John said while walking into Bunkhouse 4. The rest of the other POWs asked more questions about him, but I told them all I knew, and I had nothing left to say. While I was chatting with them, we heard John say in the background, why won't you tell me your name? What, are you embarrassed by it? We heard silence for a moment before John continued. You need some serious help. You ain't gonna make it in here without some friends. John then came walking out towards us. So, what happened in there? I asked. Well, you might have heard, but I asked him what his name was, and he just straight up ignored me, like I didn't even exist. I get he was trying to get some shut-eye, but he wasn't asleep yet, John replied. Huh, there has to be something off with him, but it might just be that he's in shock right now, so I think it would be best for all of us to just give him some space, I said to the group. They agreed and went their separate ways, and everything was normal until we were ordered into our bunkhouses for the night. The guards locked the wood door of the bunkhouses that we were in. Roughly five minutes later, the tongueless prisoner began to hyperventilate, sounding like he was having a heart attack. Someone in the darkness said, Shut up, whoever that is. I'm trying to sleep. The breathing, however, only grew louder. 
I tried to ignore it and was on the verge of slumber, until he started groaning. Everyone got up to see what was going on with him, and in the darkness, we heard him hit the wooden floor with a hard thump, and then intense scratching echoed throughout the bunk. Should I light a candle? One man asked. Yeah, but be discreet about it, because we don't want any of the guard posts thinking that we're up to something. Keep it away from the windows the best you can. I replied as we gathered around where the tongueless soldier laid, hunched over, scratching into the wood. What is he doing? I asked myself while moving closer. He was trying to say something with his mouth, but it came out as a fast, mumbled mess. That's when the one with the candle brought it close to where the man was hunched over. He's trying to write something. The man with the candle said, What? What is it? The group of prisoners whispered. I walked closer and in the wood floorboards, he was scratching something. The longer that he scratched into it, the more streaks of blood smeared across the top of it. I made out the first words and read them out loud. It's here. I paused and thought before saying, I think he's just talking about that thing that's supposedly following him, that I told you guys about earlier. He must have had a nightmare or something, cause there's no way anyone can get into this bunkhouse, especially how surveyed this camp is. I'm heading back to bed. Everyone looked at me while I began to walk towards my bunk, before the man grabbed my shirt with his bloody hands. He then pointed to the floor of where he wrote which said, It's here. Don't look outside. And then one of the British POWs who was bunked with us named George said, Look mate, we understand you've been through some bloody crap, but this thing that's following you, it's in your head. It's not real and none of us are going to get a wink of sleep if you... A man in the back interrupted him saying while looking out the window, Whoa! What in the bloody hell is that thing? Upon hearing this, the tongueless man's eyes grew wide, and he was nearly about to tear my shirt off. The man, staring out the window, continued saying, It looks like... But before he was able to finish the sentence, the tongueless soldier leaped on him and tackled him to the ground with speed that seemed humanly impossible. He held the one soldier's mouth closed so he couldn't speak and the surrounding soldiers pried him off against his will. He kicked, punched, and bit like his life depended on it. What's wrong? We all asked, and he stopped fighting and outstretched his hand. I grabbed the papers that he had set next to his bunk, and a pencil which I swiftly handed over to him. He wrote fiercely, and I read it out loud. Don't describe what it looks like. The man who had been tackled to the ground began to sit up, and asked with wide eyes, What is that thing? The tongueless soldier then wrote in response, I don't know, but I lost my fellow platoon to that thing while we crash-landed into the wilderness. While trying to get back to a nearby army post, someone saw it and went on to call us over, and described what it looked like. I was a little slow getting over there, but as soon as I did... The thing was already digging into everyone. That's when I thought I was dead, as it looked straight at me for a few seconds before running off into the woods. I tried to make it back to the army base by myself, but that thing kept following me until I was eventually captured and sent here. 
After reading it out loud to everyone, I asked, Why didn't it kill you? Writing again, he handed another note over that read, I realize why I killed them. They described what it looked like. Thinking that I could get rid of it and stop it from following me, I cut my own tongue out to prove that I would never describe it. That was all for nothing. Well, what does it look like then? Another soldier asked. Are you stupid? He just said that he would die if he said. I replied. Do you really think that's true? He has to be messing with us. I want to see if he's actually telling the truth. So, he should tell us what it looks like. If nothing happens, then it means his entire story is fake. The soldier said while stepping closer. But what if it is real and we all die? I asked. If that happens, then I guess aliens and Bigfoots and all that other stuff is real too. He replied with a cackle before continuing. So go on ahead. Tell us. The tongueless man shook his head angrily. And that's when the soldier turned to the man that had supposedly seen the thing outside. How about you? You probably didn't even see anything other than a guard patrolling. And go ahead. Tell us what it looks like. The man on the ground quivered in the same manner the tongueless man did. He turned to the tongueless man and mumbled. So if I describe it, it'll kill me. The tongueless soldier nodded and the man on the ground said, Give me a knife. Everyone in the bunkhouse was confused before somebody said, We don't have any knives in here. All weapons were confiscated long before any one of us got here. Without any hesitation, the man on the ground took his hand and started digging at his tongue. His unclipped fingernails dug deep into it, and his hands were now dripping blood onto the wood boards below. The speed at which he was going was so intense that no one could ever get over the shock fast enough to stop him, but just watch the horror ensue. That's when I finally had enough and couldn't watch this for another second, and so I grabbed both of his arms which he flailed around the room, trying to get back into his mouth. John and a British soldier helped me gain control of him, so he couldn't harm himself anymore. Let go! He screamed at us. I'm going to die! I quickly asked someone what his name was, fast because I didn't know him too well, and they replied that it was Robert. Calm down, Robert. It's going to be fine. But if you don't shut it, then those guards on patrol are going to come in here and punish all of us. You got that. I whispered while pinning him tightly against the ground with help from John. He looked me straight in the eyes and shook his head. I'm a dead man if I don't do this. That thing, it's terrible. Worse than hell. After saying this, he stuck his tongue out at us before biting down with all of his might. The sight made me nauseous as he moved his bottom jaw in a sawing motion, before the tongue was only hanging on by a few strands of flesh. I let go of him, as well as John, because there was nothing that we could do to stop him. With his now-released hands, Robert tore it off completely, and everybody gasped in utter disgust, trying to hold back their stomachs. The one man who previously was saying that this was all made up, named Randy, now stood motionless before saying, This has got to be some elaborate prank because there's no way he just bit his own tongue off. So, come on guys, the fun's over. Just admit it. 
Robert stared at him with his mouth dripping blood while on the verge of screaming in agonizing pain. He tried to mutter some words before remembering that he couldn't speak. And that's when he spit red on Randy before grabbing and slamming his head against the wall. And then he dragged him to the window and pressed his head against it, while mumbling words that came out as, Look at it. Look at it. I could tell that he was saying, look at it. Robert, let him go. We cried out while trying to pry him off, but he seemed to be on drugs, as every last muscle was being used at full capacity. Randy screamed, I see it. Let me go. I believe you. It's coming closer. Please, no. It looks like... Randy was yanked through the bulletproof glass window ferociously. Robert was holding onto him so tightly that he was pulled through also. I and everyone else looked away, as to not catch a single glimpse as to what that thing looked like. In less than 20 seconds, guards had quickly entered the bunkhouse and the spotlight from a guard tower was focused on it, with the bright light shining through the broken window. The guard ordered us to our assigned bunks which we quickly went to. All of us were speechless on what had happened. The guards noticed the missing POWs and the shattered window, so they quickly sent out a patrol but found nothing, and to this day, the bodies of Robert and Randy were never recovered. The guards supposed that they had escaped but were perplexed on how they were able to break through the bulletproof glass and questioned everyone in the bunkhouse intensely. This, however, was the start to much more to come. We tried to tell them the truth, but they thought it was all lies, which I can't blame them for. I would have thought the same thing if I were in their shoes. The rest of the camp later asked what had happened, and we told them, and again, they didn't believe us until the nights that followed. More people went missing, and everyone started becoming extremely paranoid. The POW camp guards thought that people were escaping while the prisoners who didn't know the backstory thought that the guards were secretly executing prisoners. It was the worst time of my life, as every night I was there I could hear the tongueless soldiers starting to mumble in the night, and that's when I just stuck my head deeper under my blankets and pillow, while closing my eyes so tight that I felt like I was going to burst a blood vessel. Luckily, we were only there for two more weeks before being liberated by the Allies, once I finally got out of that place, I felt a sense of safety and freedom. However, I still sometimes feel at night that the things just outside my window, waiting for me to look outside. The Eyes in the Tree Line Written by Bad Bad Leroy Brown, 69 The slow rev of my car turned into an unhealthy, guttural whine. The old beast came to a pathetic halt, making my heart sink like a rock. Christ, I angrily yelled, slamming my fist on the wheel. It's okay, Abigail called me. She was my ever-assured and level-headed wife who sat beside me. Even now with her hair in an untidy bun, her face free of makeup, and her eyes sunken from sleep deprivation. She was beautiful. I'll check the engine, I told her, unbuckling my seatbelt. She went to do the same, but I put my hand on the buckle to stop her. 
No, you rest up. She wasn't really dissatisfied, but Abigail never liked being the damsel in distress. As I leant over, she kissed my forehead. I smiled and slowly traced my hand up to her pregnant stomach. I could feel my son in there, breathing and squirming. I got out of the car and shut the door behind me. It was blisteringly cold. We were surrounded by woods and mountains, lit only by our barely functioning headlights. I could hear some kind of waterfall nearby, as it was the only sound. On the left-hand side, the woods were dense and about 10 meters away from the dirt road. On the right was the base of the mountain, rocky and allegedly prone to mild or severe landslides. Our car was a beaten up, dusty old Toyota, and the fact that it wasn't sizzling was a good sign. The engine wasn't completely ruined and was certainly fixable. I took to the back of the car and I opened it up, revealing all of our stuff. Our suitcases full of clothes, my acoustic guitar, stuff for the baby, all buried atop my ever-helpful box of tools. I dug them out and lifted them up. They were older and more beaten up than the car, passed down from my grandpa, to my dad and then to me. Hey, but if it works, it works. As I walked back to the front, I noticed Abigail had opened her window. You're not fixing it yourself, are you? Are you surprised? Come back inside, it's cold. I'll call someone. Well, if it's cold, close the window and don't let it in. Do you even have service? Yeah, well, it comes on and off. I'll get a head start on it. As I walk away, Abigail reaches a hand out to grab my arm. You don't always have to be the hero, Arthur. She knew I didn't like hearing that, and in hindsight, I can see how right she is. I gently removed her grasp. Don't go lunging like that. I eased her back in the car. Hey, at least he'll like roller coasters when he's older. Not like a sheep of a dad. My laughed, but then became very conscious of the noise that we were making. Abigail read me like a dang book. What is it? Think something's gonna get us. She teased. I smiled a bit awkwardly. It was like I was talking to her for the first time again. It, something could. There are bears in these mountains. I glanced over her shoulder. Reminding myself of her shotgun on the back two seats. If I yell, you get ready with that, alright? Abigail smiled. Whatever, I'm calling the maintenance company. Alright, it's freezing. I gotta get this done. She rolled up the window and I got to work. Being a mechanic since I was 16 meant that I was well versed in the intricacies of the car. So, I was confident that I could fix it whenever it broke down. Abigail wanted her son to be born in California, where she grew up. So, we were driving to stay with her parents there for a few weeks, as we await the birth. I'm self-employed, so I could just offer my services there to keep earning cash. My skills also gave me a chance to show off, as I unfortunately love to do. But today... The scene was different. The wind chilled me to my bones, making them quiver. My hand shook with a mix of the cold and uncertainty, 
this place was not a safe nor a comfortable one. My uncertainty led to my failure to fix the engine. The oil pan's bolts came loose and the thing was royally messed up. The clumsy nature that I took them off made me cut my hand with my tools. Nothing bad, but I was bleeding. Abigail, I called. She rolled down the window and hurried out, dropping the hoodie that she was using as a blanket in the dirt. What is it? Oh, crap. Knowing exactly what to do, before I could protest, she removed my coat and wrapped it around my hand tightly. As it begins to soak with blood, the wound throbs with pain, and she gnaws it even tighter. That was... that coat was expensive, I joked. I saw her smile which made my chills go away. Shut up, she replied, slinging the rest of the coat over my shoulder. I held it steady. I'll get the actual bandages. Does it hurt? Uh, yeah. Baby. You what? We both laughed. As she takes my hand to lead me into the car... I get a sinking feeling. I stop, tugging her backwards by accident. Arthur. There's shuffling coming from the woods. The rhythm of a chant begins to overpower the waterfall. My eyes zip about the tree line, trying to make sense of it all to find the source. Arthur, what's that? Get the gun, I murmur. Abigail clutches onto my hand a bit tighter. Taking my eyes away from the trees, I look at her eyes. They're scared. An emotion I rarely see from her. The chants and whispers become louder, more aggressive. My eyes dart back to the woods. Red little beady lights litter the trees, like horrifying Christmas lights. They move up and down, left to right, and they all center on Abigail. The chanting is like talking now. Get the gun, I command again. Abigail is frozen in fear. I dart in front of her, pushing her back to the car. Get the gun, Abigail, I say more desperately. The eyes pick up on my fear, and they appear to move closer. In the darkness, I can now see their skinny silhouettes. They twitch in some convulse unnaturally. They're naked, and I see no folds or unnatural shapes. Abigail is in the car, scrambling for the shotgun, and that's when they make their move. They were there, and then they were all over us. They move like shadows, scrambling all around me and the car like insects. They scratched, bit, slashed, even licked and grappled. They were tangible. I punched a few, but I could not see much of them as they attempted to blind me. But the worst part were the noises they made. They growled, hissed in a horrible chesty way, like pack-a-day smokers. And they screamed. By God, did they scream. Loud, high-pitched, soul-crushing screams. They drowned out Abigail's incessant cries for help. I heard a few blasts from the shotgun and the window shattering. They clamored all over the car, breaking inside as the rest shoved me to the ground. I was bleeding pretty bad, and I could only open my eyes for short glimpses. I saw old men and women, 
their skin wrecked and hard. Canyons of cuts littered their bodies, like they took time to carve into themselves. They were filthy, and they stunk like crap. I don't remember when they stopped, or what happened after I was torn up on the ground. They just went. It was as if they were a vision or a mirage, but my clothes were bloodstained. They had scratched me up, and it stung like crazy. As I forced myself to stand up, the wilderness was quiet again. Abigail was gone. They took nothing except her, even leaving the scratched shotgun behind. I would have cried had I not been so angry. My car was ruined. The windows were all broken and shattered. The doors were more or less torn off. The headlights were shattered. The chairs were ripped open. The trunk prized open. Our belongings had been smashed to pieces. But I didn't care. I barely acknowledged it in my mind. I put on my coat, checked up on my wounds, and then lifted the shotgun and marched into the woods. Like I said, it was as quiet as a graveyard. There were no crows, no critters scurrying after having been disturbed by the attack. The forest slept. The only noise was what I marched towards, the waterfall. I couldn't see anything. I was blind, so I had to listen. The worst sprang into my mind as I walked, with passion and determination. Why wasn't she screaming? I reached the waterfall, having to descend a steep dirt slope. Breaking through the tree line, I found myself at a riverbed. It was lit up by torches. These creatures could understand fire. I followed the torches as they created a clear path. My body ate, unignorably so. I finally found the waterfall. The torches led right to it. It was high and splashed down into a rocky ledge before finally crashing into the river. Lost for a moment, I looked around for some kind of settlement or camp. I estimated their numbers to be at about 30, so they must have had some kind of home base. And that's when I clocked it. I slung the shotgun over my shoulder and heaved myself onto the ledge. The water fell painfully onto my cuts as I entered the waterfall. There was a cave behind it. The walls were scratched and cut, leaving crevices in the stone. The lighting was sparse and the ground was covered in dead grass. I clutched my weapon in my two hands. No matter how much it pained my newly opened wound, I plunged in. The chants echoed around me, but it sounded like they were coming from behind, above, even below me. The crevices became more common as the tunnel got deeper and more narrow. This place didn't feel natural, not even real. The tunnel became so narrow that I had to sidestep, pushing myself up against the stone. As it became more and more claustrophobic, the air became thin. Taking deep breaths, I held them for as long as possible and released them in natural successions. It calmed me down, fortunately. On one of the exhales, all of the excess air was pushed out as a hand sprung from the stone. They clawed on my eyes, my nose, and ears. They weren't gray, and they weren't protruding from the walls. 
they were just there. I screamed as loud as I could, but the hands just held my mouth shut. They jabbed at my eyes, tried to pull my hair and ears from my body. I couldn't bring out my shotgun, so I just dropped it and tried to bat the hands away. Eventually, I crumbled to the floor, stuck between the small gap. The hands clawed at all my body and ripped apart my clothing. They grappled on my body, becoming more and more violent, trying to rip it apart. Once again, I don't remember it ending, it just did. I was left quivering in the small rocky gap, my shotgun just out of reach. My bloody wounds were sticking to the rocks and would be painful to remove them, but I did, standing up and stumbling forward. I reached the end, where the tunnel finally began to open up again. A sprawling network of caves laid out before me, with a sunken crypt below it. It was like a beehive. I saw the shadows clambering around the edges of the tunnels like spiders, but none would come out. The area was lit up by more torches, and a single man stood in the center of the crypt. He was naked, skinny, and feral. The creature appeared to be human, but he wasn't. He was twitching, and his limbs were turning unnaturally. His right forearm was backwards, and his left hand was swiveling 360 degrees. He faced away from me. I didn't know what to do, so I stayed silent looking down at him. As more of the creatures came to the mouths of their caves, they looked down at me. As others began whispering and chanting, the creature in the middle turned its head around and stared at me. When I say head, I mean just the head. Its body stayed exactly where it was. Its face was sunken in. Its beard was long and gray. He had no ears, but he did have a toothy, awful grin and pure, dark red eyes. Arthur, 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 he began chanting. It was Abigail's voice. Horrified, I stepped backwards and looked around the hive. More and more of the creatures came bounding to the edges of their caves. They ran on all fours and followed in the chance, one after another. Arthur! Arthur! The noise became deafening, bouncing off of the walls. The chorus eventually began to overlap over itself, creating a horrifying aura. My head became heavy and the room became unclear. As I snapped back to it, I raised my gun. They were out of range, but maybe something would ricochet and give one of them even a little bit of pain. But I couldn't shoot, as I realized something. They all had Abigail's face, but twisted. Her eyes were pure red, her skin was rough and scratched, her mouth had crevices carved into it. I couldn't move. I was stunned at the sight of it all. I was all too aware of the presence walking up behind me. She is with us, a voice whispered. It was horrible, like the wind mixed with gravel and tobacco. I couldn't bear to turn around and face it. I left some time later. I can't tell you when. All I know is that three days had passed, but my wounds have only gotten worse. Search and rescue picked me up a few miles from the mountain as I stumbled down the dirt roads. 
It's been a few weeks, I know that at least. My whole perception of time is messed up. When I think that I was sitting for a minute, it's usually been hours. When I think that I've been awake for an hour, it becomes night. Like I said, these cuts keep getting worse. Pus trickles out of them. Sometimes it's red and sometimes it's purple. One of them had slashed up my left eye and now I can barely see out of it. My body feels heavier each day. I can't eat without a tasting of dirt and rock. I feel myself drifting. I don't want to wither away here, with my body slowly deteriorating. I bought a new gun and made myself a few Molotovs. I haven't worked for a while, but I still have enough money to rent a car. I'm going back to that mountain, to the cave behind the waterfall. I'm going to go out a hero, taking every single one of those things with me. I set up a voice recorder before I went to bed last night. It picked up some weird sounds. Written by Christopher Maxim. I am a chronic sleep talker. Always have been. Everyone who's ever slept in the same house as me will tell you that. My parents, siblings, friends, and especially my exes... They're the ones who got an earful. It was something that we would laugh about in the morning, because most of what I would say would be incoherent or nonsensical. Some of my famous lines included, There's too many helicopters in the pool, and my balloon's on the wrong foot. It never bothered anyone around me. My friends and family pretty much just got a kick out of it. One day at work, the subject of sleeping came up. My coworkers threw stories back and forth about some of their weirdest dreams. I chimed in with my sleep-talking antics. Everyone laughed as I rattled off some of the crazier stuff I had said while zonked. One of my coworkers, Bill, really busted a gut. After he finished hyperventilating... He told me that I should set up a voice recorder while I sleep, so I could play it back at work every morning. Honestly, I didn't think it was a bad idea. That night, I downloaded a decent voice recording app on my phone and placed it on my nightstand before I went to bed. Being single and living alone, I had no way of knowing what I said in my sleep anymore. So, I was looking forward to hearing what it would pick up. It would be a humorous way to start my otherwise dull mornings. For two months, I recorded a lot of great stuff. One night in particular, I kept screaming, almost as if I was running from something in my dream. But after a few minutes, I said, Bad fridge. I couldn't stop laughing at that one. Neither could my coworkers when I showed them. Eventually, the app picked up something unsettling. Listening to the audio for any trace of funny banter I might find, I heard a loud bang. It sounded like a door being slammed shut with great force. Hearing that, my heart sank. 
I wondered if an intruder had made their way into my home. My house is a small cottage on the outskirts of town. I was able to get it at a great price due to its location and age. As such, some of its components are antiquated. I knew after hearing the recording that the only two doors dirty enough to make that lot of a thud were that of the attic and the basement. Basements and attics have always freaked me out. Never liked to go near them as a kid, and I still don't as an adult. They kind of terrify me. The ones in my house, even more so. Something about them being old made them all the more sinister. And despite my fear, I had to make sure that no one was in the house. I got up out of bed and headed straight for the basement, as that was the door closest to my bedroom. I hesitantly opened the door and descended into my home's depths. I was nervous, but I was desperate for some peace of mind. The basement was empty. I quickly ran back up to the first floor and proceeded to journey upstairs. Once I had reached the attic door, I froze. As much as basements made my skin crawl, I find attics to be far worse. Maybe it was because there were always a big unknown to me. I'd only ever been in the attic once my whole life, and that was to help my dad unload some Christmas decorations. Even then, I was spooked. Because of my phobia, I had installed a deadbolt on the door when I moved in. It sounds foolish, but hey, it helps me sleep at night. Looking at the door, I noticed that the deadbolt was still locked. An intruder could have gone in and then relocked it on their way out, but at least I knew they weren't in there anymore. This was my excuse not to go inside. I went back downstairs and put the noise out of my mind. Forgetting all about the loud bang, I continued to record at night in the hopes of catching more sleep talking. I did, but it wasn't of the hilarious, absurd variety. The night after I recorded the noise, the only thing I said the whole night was, Where are you? I didn't pay it any mind as I've said similar things in my sleep before. It wasn't until I heard the following night's recording that I became alarmed. I said the same thing. Where are you? Only this time, it was followed by a strange, static sound. This was odd, but I chalked it up to coincidence and a phone malfunction. I quickly discovered that neither of these things were to blame. Every night after, I got almost the same exact thing. I would ask, Where are you? And then I would get some sort of static interference. I couldn't explain it, and it left me rather frazzled. I showed my coworkers, but they weren't able to offer me any insight. I thought about not recording anymore, but not knowing would make me more uneasy. I wanted to get to the bottom of what was going on. And then one night, I caught something different. Listening to the audio intently, 
I heard two distinct things. During a two-minute stretch in the recording, there were footsteps in the background, almost as if someone was pacing. It was very faint, but it was most certainly there. The second thing I heard was me asking the same question. Where are you? Only this time, I received a response. It was a low whisper, but I could make out what it said. I'm upstairs. Deeply unnerved by my findings, I set up the app again the next night. I also took the liberty of setting up two digital cameras, one in my room and one facing the attic door. After adjusting the light settings on each, I felt confident in my approach. I didn't have time to deal with this BS, so I wanted nothing more than to get it sorted out somehow. Unfortunately for me, it just wasn't that simple. I slept through the night like normal, but I did have a weird dream. In my dream, I was at home. I was sitting on my couch watching TV when I heard a scratching sound coming from upstairs. Naturally, I assumed it was mice, but as I sat there, the noise grew louder and louder. It eventually morphed into a horrendous knocking sound, and that's when I got up to investigate. I made my way up to the attic door, and the noises ceased. I stood there for a moment expecting it to start up again, but it didn't. Complete silence for what felt like a few minutes. And then, without warning, a loud clicking sound broke the tension. The deadbolt had unlocked itself. And then that's when I woke up to the sound of my alarm going off. I immediately got up and gathered the cameras, as well as my phone, I was eager to see if they had captured anything. They did, but it only left me with more questions. Halfway through the audio on both my phone and the camera in my room, I heard once again, Where are you? There was no response and no static, but there was a loud bang, just like the one I had caught before, only more distinct. It was most certainly a door being slammed shut. I quickly grabbed the second camera and began looking through the footage. The attic door never opened. Instead, I heard a bang in the background ever so faintly. Given the volume in each of the clips, it seemed as though it might have been the basement door. After skimming through the rest of the footage, and finding nothing else out of the ordinary, I decided to check the basement again. With a mixture of nerves and adrenaline, I ran over to the basement door and swung it open. I hurried downstairs and turned the light on. I was fed up and a little annoyed, thinking someone was somehow having a laugh at my expense. However, when the room lit up, I was greeted with the familiar sight of an unfurnished basement. It was completely empty. No intruder and no answers. 
Frustrated, I went off to work and tried to keep my mind off of my odd dilemma. That proved to be a difficult task. I kept playing out different scenarios in my head during the workday, but nothing made sense. The only logical, though somewhat illogical explanation that I could come up with was that I was being harassed by a spirit. I didn't want to give in to that notion, but I was running out of ideas. I tried to talk with my coworkers again, in the hopes that they would tell me it was nothing to worry about. Instead, I received the opposite. One of my coworkers told me to call the cops and have them look through the house for signs of a break-in. Another one told me that I should stay at my friend's house. Bill told me to abandon the house and run for the hills. He was only joking, but it didn't make me feel any better about the matter. Things took a turn for the bizarre when I arrived home that day. Opening the front door to the cottage, I stepped in and set my jacket down on the couch. I then plopped down in an attempt to unwind. Immediately after sitting, I heard the bang again. It was clear as day. It was the same sound from the audio and footage, but this time, I was hearing it in person. I jumped up and looked straight ahead at the basement door. You could see it from the couch. It had been in my line of sight the entire time. Though I hadn't been looking directly at it, I was fairly certain it hadn't moved. Still, the bang definitely came from that direction. Spooked but curious, I decided to check it out. I walked over cautiously and examined the door. There was no indication that it had been slammed shut. The wood around the door was pristine, and the floor below it had not been scraped. I opened it and trotted down the old, creaky stairs to investigate the basement for a third time. After reaching the bottom... I turned the light on. I expected to see nothing, just as I had before. While scanning the room left to right, nothing is mostly what I saw. After doing a double take, however, I realized that something was amiss. Off in the center of the far wall was a door. This sent a chill up my spine. My basement had no doors. That I was sure of. I knew this before purchasing the place almost a year ago, when I first took the grand tour. I also didn't see the door when I went down there that morning, or the other day. It didn't make a lick of sense. I walked towards it, bewildered. I wasn't sure of the door's origins, but I knew that it had to be the cause of these sounds I'd been hearing. There was no other explanation. As I approached the impossibility before me, I realized something that made my skin crawl. I recognized the wood, the design, and the deadbolts. It was the attic door. Seeing the attic door was a shock. I didn't want to open it, for fear of what might be lurking behind. Instead, I ran upstairs and checked to see if the attic door was still there, the actual one. 
It was indeed. And then I ran back downstairs to the basement, only to find that the door down there had vanished. Had I merely imagined its presence? Thinking that I had gone completely mad, I went back upstairs and sat down on the couch. My mind was running haywire, trying to comprehend things, but it eventually gave in to its own weariness. I ended up taking a short nap, and that's when I had another weird dream. This dream was similar to the one that I had had before. I was sitting on the couch watching TV when I heard a scratching noise. The only difference was, it was coming from the basement rather than the attic. It too progressed and turned into a voracious knocking that I couldn't ignore. As such, I got up from the couch and went downstairs to put a stop to it. In my dream, the basement was empty. No mysterious door in sight. That and the knocking and scratching ceased upon my entrance. At my wit's end, I went back upstairs. The sound then returned with a vengeance. Only this time, it was coming from the attic again. I ran up there as fast as I could, but the noise stopped. I waited. Following the narrative of my previous dream, the deadbolt clicked, signaling that the door had unlocked itself. Unlike my previous dream, however, the door opened up a bit and a hand reached out from within. That's when I woke up. I wrote the first dream off as the byproduct of an overstressed mind, but to have it reoccur, that wasn't ordinary, at least not for me. Between the door in my basement and my strange nightmares, I was a mess, both perplexed and frightened. I called my friend John. John is an eccentric fellow. He's the kind of guy who believes in UFOs, ghosts, conspiracy theories, the occult, and other things of that nature. Not only does he believe in them, but he studies them. He knows more about Roswell than I do about myself. Being a skeptic, I always thought the massive amount of information he retained was borderline useless. I changed my mind about that after seeing my attic door pop up in my basement. If anyone could help, or at least steer me in the right direction, it was him. I spoke with John for a couple of hours. He was ecstatic after hearing about my experience. He began rattling off all of the different things he thought it might indicate. Some of his theories included a wormhole, a gateway to the other side, and even a glitch. One of the many theories that he subscribes to is that the world we live in is a simulation. He told me that he couldn't be completely certain about what it was without seeing it for himself. Unfortunately, he lives too far away to just stop by and visit. Instead of leaving me empty-handed, John gave me some advice on what to do next. After telling him about the voice that I had captured and the dreams that I had been having, he started leaning towards the ghost idea. He thought that it might be trying to communicate with me. Because of this, he told me that I should set up the voice recorder in the basement and ask the spirit some questions.
I could play back the recording after and listen for the voice. John said that I should do it in the attic as well. Though weary of his methods, I told him that I would try it out. After all, I couldn't just sit around and expect the situation to resolve itself. I didn't like the idea of going up in the attic by myself, but I needed to do something. After getting off the phone, I immediately put his plan into action. The basement would have to be first, as I was still apprehensive about going upstairs. I set up the app and put my phone on the basement floor. I proceeded to ask questions, leaving enough space in between for someone or something to answer. I asked for normal things like its name, its age, and what it wanted. After roughly five minutes of interrogation, I stopped the recording and played it back. I must have listened to my own voice a million times, hoping for anything audible to present itself. And to my dismay, I caught nothing of the sort. It seemed as though the attic would indeed have to be my next venture. I reluctantly climbed the stairs up to the attic door. I looked at it for a few moments, took a deep breath, and unlocked the deadbolt. I opened the door and braced myself. There was nothing there, save for the previous owner's belongings. When I had first purchased the house, I had to do a little bit of renovating, so to speak. The owner before me had no cable, electricity, or proper plumbing, and on top of that, they left all of their stuff behind. I had most of it removed, but left everything that was in the attic. I had no need for the space, and I didn't want to put any more money into emptying the house than I had to. I perused through the attic's wares for a bit, curious as to what it was that I technically owned. Some of the interesting items that stood out to me were an old postcard from Paris, a strange-looking dog collar, and a book on witchcraft. The fear set in while going through the contents of my new collection. The angled ceiling, antiques, and large window overlooking my yard did give the place a dose of charm, but I still didn't like attics. I quickly hit the record button on the app and set my phone on the floor. I asked these same questions as before, but didn't leave as much space in between as I really wanted to get the heck out of there. Before stopping the recording, I had a thought. Perhaps the spirit would respond if I asked it the same question that I did in my sleep. I cleared my throat and asked, Where are you? After asking the final question, I stopped the recording and played it back. It sounded almost identical to the one that I had recorded in the basement, complete with a lack of answers. That is until the very end. After I asked the last question, I heard a familiar, low whisper. After hearing the voice on my phone, I immediately turned around. There was nothing there, and despite this, I hightailed it downstairs. That eerie voice reinforced my phobia of addicts and instilled in me an indescribable dread. 
I could no longer bear to be in that house by myself. I called John again and begged him to help me out. I told him that I would give him the gas money for the 8 hour round trip. He was reluctant at first, knowing that he would have to spend the night and call out from work the next morning. But curiosity got the best of him in the end. After much deliberation, he agreed to come over. I waited for John in my car. While sitting there, I couldn't help but examine my house. I began asking myself questions, like, is it really haunted? Do ghosts really exist? And my favorite, is this what my life has come to? Though the questions were speculative and rhetorical, I pretty much knew the answers. As I glazed towards the house in disappointment, I noticed something out of the corner of my eye. It was a silhouette, standing at the attic window. Holy crap, what the heck, what do I do? Those were the only retorts that crossed my mind after seeing the shadowy figure. After a few moments of staring, the figure stepped back from the window, completely out of sight. I sat and pondered about it for a few minutes after its departure. In a moment of bravery, I chose to go back in the house and up to the attic. It's crazy, I know, but it's my house, and I needed to show this thing that I wasn't interested in playing its games, even if I was scared out of my mind. And besides, John would have my head if I didn't follow the thing. Feeling confident but still shaky, I ventured up into the attic. I swung the door open without hesitation and waltzed in like I owned the place. After all, I did. The attic was void of any ghostly figures, but it did harbor the faint scent of candle wax. Unsure of how to proceed, I started talking in a loud and firm tone. This isn't your house. I'm tired of your games, spirit. I demand that you leave at once. I knew this wasn't going to work, but it was almost cathartic. It felt a heck of a lot better fighting back. I walked around the attic, satisfied with my rant, thinking that I had actually conquered my fear. My smug demeanor wouldn't last more than a few moments. Soon after I spoke, a gust of wind blew through the attic and hit me like a bus nearly knocked me over. I knew it was the ghost doing. I tried to stand my ground, but I was pretty freaking frightened. I watched as everything around me flew about, creating a tornado of mementos and keepsakes. I was about to retreat when I noticed something that hadn't budged an inch. It was the book on witchcraft that I had seen before. Upon noticing it, the wind inexplicably stopped and everything fell to the floor. I walked over to the book, curious as to why it remained stationary. As I did, it opened up on its own. It was startling, but I somehow sensed no malice. I was coming around to the fact that the ghost might really be trying to communicate with me. The page the book landed on was a spell. The whole thing was in Latin. But from what I can make out, it had something to do with growing plants. 
Confused, I reached out to the ghost for help. What do you want me to do? After asking the question, the attic door slammed shut. I thought for a moment and gathered that it wanted me to recite the spell in the attic. I was still confused but somehow calm. It felt as though I was helping the spirit in some way. Before I could read from the book, my phone went off. It was a text from John. So, so sorry. I can't make it out there. My boss won't give me the day off tomorrow and I'm not sure my car will make it there and back. It desperately needs new tires and I won't be able to buy those until Friday. Give me a call back then and I'll see what I can do. Good luck. Crap. Even though I wasn't freaking out anymore, it was nice knowing that someone was on their way to my house, just in case things went sour. I didn't like it, but I was on my own. I accepted this and turned my attention back to the book. It was time to deliver the spell. I cleared my throat and began reciting the text in the book. I took Latin in college, and although I didn't retain all the information, I knew enough to make the proper pronunciations. Even still, I stumbled over my words during certain parts. Because of this, I had to restart a couple of times. I wanted to get it right, especially if it was truly what the ghost wanted. After finishing the spell flawlessly for the most part, the attic door opened. I walked out with the book in hand, wondering if everything was over. When I reached the bottom step and turned around the corner, it became quickly apparent that it wasn't. The basement door was wide open. I was in uncharted territory, taking orders from a ghost, but I hoped that I was following along alright. Seeing the basement door ajar convinced me that I probably needed to recite the spell down there as well. I still wasn't sure why, but it felt like this was the spirit's will. As such, I obliged. I walked down into the basement with the book and turned the light on. A quick glance around revealed that I was alone and that there was no door. I cleared my throat once again and began reciting the spell word for word. Honestly, I was a little excited. It felt like I was doing something productive about my ghost problem and that it might actually help put it to rest. This time, I got it right on the first try. Upon finishing the spell in the basement, the house began shaking. When I say the house, I mean the whole house, basement and all. I had never experienced an earthquake before, but it seemed like the only logical explanation for what was happening. It wasn't until I looked around the room during the madness that I realized it was these spells doing. There on the far wall, shaking with the rest of the house, was the attic door. I wondered if the spell had somehow summoned it simultaneously causing the house to wobble. The tremor eventually stopped, and I was left with the door, lending credence to my theory. I waited for a few minutes, thinking the door would open, but it did not. It seemed that I would have to do that myself. I wasn't too happy about it, but I had come too far to back out now. I gathered my wits and walked over to the door, 
I proceeded to swing it open without fear, just as I head upstairs. Beyond the door was a surprise. It was the attic. The attic upstairs. Everything was the same, only there was a man standing at the window. Hearing me open the door, he turned around. His eyes widened when he saw me. He ran so fast in my direction that I didn't even have enough time to take more than a single step back. He rushed through the doorway and into the basement. He turned back around and slammed the attic door shut, making sure to lock the deadbolt. He turned to me, grabbed my shoulders and looked me dead in the eye. I was baffled and scared for my life. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. After expressing his thanks, the man let go of me and ran upstairs, but not before turning back around and offering me some advice. Whatever you do, don't go in there. He gestured toward the attic door before bolting upstairs. I ran after him, wanting to ask some questions, but when I got upstairs, it was already too late. My front door was open, and I could see him running down the dirt road towards town. And that was that. I've slept every night since then with no noises or paranormal issues whatsoever. I even set up the cameras and voice recorder a few times to make sure. They didn't catch a thing. I don't know what the heck happened, but I am sure of one thing. That man that came out from behind the attic door was no ghost. It was a living, breathing person.